Welcome to the Bayesian Conspiracy. I'm Ineash Brodsky. I'm Steven Zuber. I'm a flying squirrel. <laughs> you did it. I did it. <laughs> I just re-listened to the last episode, and it's a good thing I did, because I was like, oh yeah, I'm supposed to be a flying squirrel this time. Awesome. And before we begin, Steven has a awesome announcement for us. Oh yeah, um, I have recorded the first episode of the We Want More podcast. Hell yeah. And it is not out yet. I think it'll be out, well, when's this coming out? In a couple this weeks? coming out in Wednesday? just less than two weeks, yeah, a week and a half. I think the precursor episode will definitely be out by the time this one comes out. So check it out on the Harry Potter and the Methods of Rationality podcast. Yeah, we'll cross-post it. Um, oh yeah, I guess we can cross-post on... Yeah. Yeah. Certainly at least the preamble one. Maybe if, if there's any interest, we can just do both on both podcasts. Couldn't hurt. Yeah. Um, actually, it might. I'll have to think about that. <laughs> or at least to get another episode links or something. Do the first like, episode mm-hmm. or something. Yeah. And yeah. then be like, if you want more, go back to the HP More podcast. Perfect. We'll if you that. want more, M-O-R. Yeah, oh, my yeah, God. Yeah, yeah, I think... If you want more, we want more. <laughs> I think we can think of puns to do for most of the episodes that involve the word more Okay. that we're going to do. So. <laughs> it's not that hard to come up with something that uses the word more. No. It's going to be great. So... Yay, puns. Yes. Hmm. Should be punny. It was fun. Brian's great. It's fun. So the premise of the show, for those uninitiated, um, it's ripped off the name and the inspiration from we Want, We've Got Worm, which was done by the uh, previously the Daily Planet, whatever, Incorporated. They have like a whole suite <laughs> of podcasts. Now they're the Doofcast or Doof Media. Um, so uh, Matt Freeman had read Worm and Scott Daly hadn't. So they... Uh, basically went more or less arc by arc where they'd read and then they'd talk about it and Matt would kind of just let Scott think about and talk about out loud what's going on and um, try not to, you know, spoil anything, try to be careful with all that stuff. He did such and, a good job. Yeah, I don't it was, know it was if I amazing. So it set a really high bar for this one, but um, I think this is an easier work to analyze. There's a lot less, like, character motifs and that sort mm. of underlying, I don't know, thematic development going on well this is more directly um trying to teach you something yeah uh so like you know what the theme is you don't have to go hunting for it because it's in the title yeah it's like the uh methods of rationality yeah well i meant like even the individual chapters were like the uh the whatever bias or the the fundamental attribution error yeah yeah a lot of them are fairly straightforward so i can learn stuff what i can't do is read something and discern like oh my god i totally I'm seeing this this message. I don't have that at all. But if he if the character's literally spelling it out for me, I can at least read. So, <laughs> but yeah, and, it's fun. Yeah, and it's like one third the length of Worm as well, so that makes it easier to do. I think it's like a million words shorter than than Worm. So one third. Yeah, I guess you're right. My bad. They're both really long. Yeah, yeah. One's three times as long. But that's what I love about web fiction. It's not constrained by needing to be the size of a novel. So yeah. I'm somebody that just crunches through text. And I love having stuff that updates like often enough that I'm just able to feel like, I don't know, like I'm not just burning through it and then kind of sitting around waiting for more. Right. What's crazy about Worm and especially Ward as they're going through it is like, it's a first draft every chapter that they're <laughs> reading and they're all so good. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't know what it would be like to be able to sit down and not have a review, not have uh whatever you call like a pre-publisher reading editor editor thank you (laughs) some people don't need them as much i don't know i I edit the shit out of my writing because my first drafts come out really bad but some people their first draft comes out like basically what they want i think that's maybe they need to do do, a couple of grammatical and like spelling error checks but and audiences for the most part don't care all that much 
if yeah. there's some typos, if there's, you know, it's not a perfect draft, they really want more, more than they want pristine quality generally. Yeah. I mean, I really enjoy reading fan fiction, yeah. which isn't written by professional writers, but some of the, it's the same thing with art too. I really like looking at fan art or amateur artists. I love fan art. Because uh, a lot of people, even if they're not like as technically skilled as someone who's been doing it for 20 years, have really unique ideas. Yeah. One of the and things aren't that- afraid to break conventions in ways that are kind of cool and one of the things i really like about fan well fan art any sort of fan works is that it always comes from a place of love oh yeah this is like something i love and i'm passionate about and i just wanted to do it for its own sake be interesting interesting to read like a hate-fueled fan fiction <laughs> i've read there's many of those too. <laughs> some of this. Yeah. if anyone can point me to a decent one that sounds hilarious <laughs> i'm not sure if there's any decent ones because they are hate-fueled i don't know like i almost feel like warm to some extent hmm <laughs> Is it not necessarily a hate-fueled fiction, but, like, one of the things that I enjoyed about it, though, was, like, you would never be able to publish this in, 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 like, a conventional format, is that you're rooting for a villain, you're on the side of the villain, and, like, the author could just really, like, get really violent or really disturbing. No, there's lots of stuff like that has been published. Yeah. Like The Joker. The movie that we I just... mean, the Joker is like a small example. There's there's works out there where there's a violent rape in the beginning by the protagonist. Oh, man. Yeah. Okay, I was going to say, this doesn't quite get that bad. She does shoot a baby in the face, but... <laughs> Shoots a baby in the face? Well, it was the right thing to do. <laughs> it's complicated. It makes sense in the moment. <laughs> are, you, are we talking about the Joker? No. Oh, we're talking about Worm. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, I can totally see that in Worm. I almost feel like... I wonder if we should... Honestly, why in the face? That. You, you want to like get them in the brain, it doesn't, right? It doesn't specify the face. <laughs> okay, okay. Gotcha. I just sort of assumed she I was trying to I forgot that it wasn't it. actually in the face, like because they said it so many times, I think, when we've got Ward as a joke, like, he shot a baby in the face. That... <laughs> okay. I, w- I actually, like, my memory was of her shooting it in the face. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so yeah, that is coming out, uh, I don't know, soon after you hear this. We will have the first up. Not we. Steven, specifically, as this is his baby, will have the first episode up. Well, Inuyasha is helping to nurture it. We're going to publish it on the Methods of Rationality feed. So go back. If you're not still subscribed to that like I am, make sure you click that like and subscribe button. Yeah. And, uh, or, yeah, that's subscribe to podcasts. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes. I've thrown myself through a YouTube loop now, but <laughs> they also call it that there. Yeah. So, yeah. All right. Fantastic. It should be a lot of fun. Hell Yeah. All right, today we are doing mostly listener feedback uh, so we can get caught up because we have been running behind. Um, how about I start with this one from Ray from the last episode because that was a nice, this is a really nice comment. Actually, uh, one of you emailed it to me. I did. Yeah, thank you. That actually cheered me up a lot. Uh, so Ray um, posted this both on, I think it was, was it just on the Amazing Conspiracy website or did yeah. he cross post it? I okay. only saw it on there. Uh, Ray wrote, I know Steven uses the intellectual dark web designation somewhat jokingly, but if there is such a thing and it's a positive designation for long-form content and thoughtful conversation, you've earned the designation for this episode. Yay. (laughs) In my opinion, this was your best episode ever. I don't know about that. (laughs) (laughs) Special thanks to Jess for intelligently articulating their logic. Yeah, did you listen to the one that I wasn't on? That one was really good. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But we missed you, though. Yeah. We needed Steven to bring us on tangents. Uh, I've seen Jordan Peterson rail against pronoun abuse, but haven't ever heard the other side articulated in any reasonable way. I've seen lots of illogical stuff on Twitter that has really turned me off. I had no idea, zero, of the distinction between gender and sex. I could go on, but suffice to say, I learned a lot from Jess's logical arguments. Jess's personal anecdotes were excellent, too. Mm -hmm. (laughs) The anecdotes were relevant without being overly emotionally expressed. That's not how I thought they came out, but (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) which helps someone like me understand a bit more. 
Overall, I'm still sympathetic to Inuyasha's views. Getting used to this is just hard, especially because I don't know any non-binary people. And if I've ever met- or, and if I've ever met one. I didn't know it. However, understanding the argument, along with a bit of what it feels like to be non-binary, I'll do my best to be empathetic and try to get the pronouns correct. <laughs> uh, that was really cool. I'm really happy that Congrats. that conversation ended up like getting generally really positive feedback. I was yeah. worried that there was going to be trolls and people getting offended, as often tends to happen when you get into culture war stuff. But I'm um, really like... Happy with our audience. Yeah, we've got a Y'all cool are great. If this, was, if this was on YouTube, that'd be different. Yeah. I was really scared. That I, I don't know. There'd be denunciations, all kinds of awful things. It's like, oh, God. All right. Here it goes. But well, yeah, it turned out great. And for what it's worth, like, again, from my long view, you guys, from my long out view, you guys don't really seem to disagree on really that much core stuff. It's really just about, like, nothing about, like, the experience or the... Yeah, it feels like Marts. It was just a kind of a... We have different preferences on how to express things. Or different, maybe uh, strongly held ideas of what the definitions of certain words should and shouldn't be. And, like, I don't think that's things to end friendships over. Yeah. Apparently, like, to some people, it's this is a major transgression. And then to other people, like, how dare you try to use pronouns in this illogical way? And hmm. it's really like rare to find people that are actually kind of in the middle of it like i would prefer people use these pronouns but if they don't like then like whatever <laughs> yeah i was at a thing last weekend where someone got extremely like extremely upset and pre-offended like no one had said anything but there was very much a you know if you don't respect my pronouns get the fuck out of this convention and <laughs> i'm not sure if the word fuck was used or not it may have been but the the emotion was very much there there was an implied fuck. Yes. And there might have been a said fuck. <laughs> yeah. I've, we're all adults. We don't really care that much about language. I've seen from from the left. Well, it, certain language. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, it, like, I've seen people that... There's people that have such strongly held views about stuff like that that it almost feels like I'm not allowed to say I prefer to be called they, them, but I don't really care and it's not a big deal because it's such a big deal to other people that it feels like I should also acknowledge the fact that, like, in general, pronouns are a big deal. And I don't know. I don't... And then it also feels like there's a, some pressure to... Maybe there's, like, a competitiveness, maybe a, like, oppression Olympics thing sort of going on between people <laughs> talking about, like, I need to also, you know, g give my oppression cred. Yeah. Like, oh, well, somebody said something racist to me. Like, oh, yeah, well, you should see how hard it is to be this oppressed class. And right, right. it's, I don't know. It's not great to define yourself by, like, uh, what do they call that? Uh, identity politics. I don't know why I, that totally escaped my memory, but okay. the, the identity politics thing, I think, is fractious. Yeah. I, I've been willing to just understand that from my point of view, the you know the white guy that my identity doesn't really need representation or like need an identity behind it because it's sort of like what people picture with a default um <laughs> like so, when people have straight pride day <laughs> right yeah um but the so i've come around to just understanding the fact that like if someone's proud that they're black or proud that they're gay it's to me i've never understood that just because like, I might as well be proud to have brown hair or, like, you know, whatever color my eyes are. Like, for me, you should be, like, proud of accomplishments, like, things you've done. Yeah. But it's, I understand the difference. I, I'm, I'm Now I, I'm 
that was years ago. Now okay. my current my current position is like I get where it's not so much that like I did it. I was born black. It was yeah. like um, I'm pushing back on the people who said I should be ashamed to be black. Exactly. Or ashamed to be gay. And I, I've never felt that way, so I have no idea. Um, I've no nothing in my life really to compare that to. So I, I just totally get like, hey, I'm you know that makes sense. Go for it. Right. But, but I used to be really confused by that because I'm like, how you know like um I don't know any sort of like national pride too. It's like you don't pick where you're born. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, you can be proud that like, oh yeah, you know, I, me or my family or something, you know, grabbed our shit and emigrated or something like that's, that's actually cool. That's hard. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but be like, yeah, I, I, I worked hard. I, I buckled down and I got born in Colorado. It's like, great job. <laughs> you did it. <laughs> that was some hard gestating you did. <laughs> right. Well, I actually feel proud that I escaped New Jersey. That, but that, that's something that you did. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, I was watching Steven Universe and I forgot that they have this like, short reference to new jersey in there and it's fucking great what was the reference i don't remember you don't remember this it was when they went to empire city which was clearly just like their metaphor for new york uh-huh. but uh steven was flying around on um one of the gems backs and like explaining about the earth it's like and there's the city what's that over there that dark place that's jersey mm-hmm. <laughs> and someone's like what are you doing flying in our skies get out of here there's <laughs> just like smog and billboards <laughs> I was like, ah, somebody, somebody on this animation team is from Jersey. <laughs> someone gets it, or knows someone from Jersey, yeah, or just saw their license plate, which I think is the Garden State. Yeah, like, yeah. If you're growing smokestacks, sure. There's actually the a lot Carlin of farming there. that goes on in New Jersey. There's what? There's a lot of farming for such a small state. It's got a lot of. It's got the Pine Barrens. It's got like the whole side of it that borders Philadelphia and New York. That's all like sub city. George Carlin, you misled me. It's got me. beach, and it's got farms. All right. All right. Neat. Uh, who, who else has a feedback? Uh, I have one from David, the Anarch of Fairfax. <laughs> uh, so this is um, the UBI David, or I guess NTI David, since he was specifically... NIT. NIT, yes. For NIT rather than UBI. Uh, David said, uh, I appreciate your bit about the Koch brothers um, back when I was, you know, saying they did some good things too, you know. Uh, although they didn't say that global warming isn't real. They just said that it's mainly being driven by China, India, and the developing world at this point, and that radical social reform in the developed West to fight global warming would do more harm than good in all but the most catastrophic scenarios. Um, that could be the case. I don't know. I know that they were pushing towards the... Well, like he says, it would do more harm than good, except in the most catastrophic scenarios, which I disagree with. I think we should be doing something to reduce carbon emissions. Uh, But significantly, he also added this. um, He said that uh, it's mainly being driven by China, India and the developing world at this point. And I thought that sounds really very different from what I've heard. I mean, yes, I've, I know about China and India becoming big polluters recently, but, and the developing world struck me as not true. So I pulled up a list of total emissions by country and, uh, the United States is number two, just below China and China is almost twice as much as us. Hmm. Uh, then India, Russia, Japan, you keep going down the list. Every one of these countries is a developed country with the possible exception. I don't know if like Saudi Arabia, yeah, Saudi Arabia is a developed country. Uh, every one of these countries is a de- developed, basically first world country, first world-ish. Uh, there's no developing countries on this list. So um, I, I do not think that is the case, at least in terms of uh, carbon emissions. I also 
thought it would be important to point out that um, China has a per capita emissions. They're number one, but their per capita is only six point, basically 6.6, whereas ours is 15.5. So even though they are emitting more than us, we are emitting more than twice as much as they are per capita. Yeah, they've got a billion more people. Yeah. So Yeah, a lot more land, too. Yeah, I mean, so per capita, I think I'm scrolling through this this table you brought up. I think the winner is Saudi Arabia. Mm-hmm. Um with Australia as a close second still beating us. Yeah. Um uh, the, you mean the winner being the one who's emitting the least or the most? The most. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so Saudi Arabia's the yeah. the worst. Well, because uh, they have their uh, all their oil subsidized massively uh, by right. the government. Yeah, so I guess they don't give a shit about just burning oil. I always like the the joke of like, you know, what if all this, you know, global warming, you know, stuff is a hoax and we clean the air and and, and the wa- and the world's rivers and stuff and you know, for, for nothing. Yeah. <laughs> what if we just live more sustainably for no reason? I think I think there's like some kind of counter argument that it's going to cost a lot more than you think, but I don't know what that counter argument is. And I also like the fact that I do not choke on the air outside my house. Yeah. That's very important. It, it Apparently, particulates in the air have a um, noticeable reduction on both intellect and longevity on all humans, where even if you live... Uh, downtown you are going to be one or two iq points lower than if you were to live out in the suburbs and if you live near a busy street you get the same effect rather than if you live out you know in a a cul-de-sac somewhere so i mean i'd be curious to see your sources on that um okay i do have i just moved downtown but because phoenix is allergic to everything we have like three like high volume air filters okay so i'm actually curious how how much you could actually mitigate some of those effects or and also, yeah, what what the data is. My anecdotal data is that just I used to work in the middle of downtown, like in the whatever two blocks, the actual tall buildings in Denver, and I just I'd feel grimy mm, just from yeah. you know the the few block walk from the light rail station to the building, and I just noticed when I got out of the shower, like I felt clean. Whereas like now showering is like a luxury because I don't I don't walk through the heart of downtown every day, um, or not not a luxury, but it's a it's optional. Um, but yeah, I mean, I just felt slick and pr- partly probably just psychosomatic but um maybe yeah I, I i will look up the data and put a link on the website i don't have it here in front of me unfortunately should have thought to do that uh there is one other thing to mention about this data this data is incomplete because due to international treaties no country has to report the emissions of their military huh. since that's considered like you know essential for the existence of a country the secret yeah, yeah. If, we knew US, how much, if we knew how much they were emitting we might be able to discern how big the military was or something or something the u.s <laughs> military is uh the largest military in the world by far and the u.s military is the single largest user of petroleum in the united states so uh this is definitely understated for how much we emit in the u.s since we don't count any military emissions interesting and the military in particular does not give a fuck they're like yeah we're here to not get killed and to kill others as most efficiently as possible we don't care about pollution i mean my my brother told me when he was in the military regularly any trash that they had they would just pile up in a big heap throw some gas on it and then put a uh, thermal charge in it and just burn it all down and they're like you know we're, we're not a trash service we're not an environmental service we're here to get shit done. And, uh, I mean, probably a good attitude to have for your military, but overall, bad, yeah, <laughs> bad for the planet. Yeah, it'd be weird if you had, you know, 30 of your troops carrying trash back to be, you know, processed comfortably if you're at war. Yeah. You know, but if you're just at the, I'm not sure what the situation is, like on bases all over. It's like, all right, it's not wartime. We can right. recycle or some shit, right? I mean, <laughs> it was it was in Afghanistan, so technically some sort of war footing, but it's not like there was like a 
hot firing war happening at the time you know it was yeah. more like going on patrol every now and then getting shot at coming back to a safe zone yeah i still get not making garbage trips in that situation but okay. yeah i don't know it's interesting like i i'm obviously for my armchair and i'm not whatever running the world's economy but like i don't really care how much it costs you know like when when it was discovered that chlorofluorocarbons was destroying the ozone layer right there was just a worldwide ban basically mm-hmm. implemented fairly quickly and the ozone layer is now doing great yeah, yeah. um on the other hand it's also much easier to ban that than it is to ban the use of power. burning things. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. So, I mean, it was a lot easier to do, and there were there were suitable replacements and that sort of stuff. There's but. arguments that we've already done enough damage that we're going to have to do a significant amount of damage reversal. Yeah. And uh, I'm worried about things like plastics in the oceans and endangered uh, species kind of cascading. and like, Yeah. Although, fun fact. If species you, extinction. Uh, if you like looking at fires, um, wood is the dirtiest fuel uh by quite a mar- large margin that is used still in the uh in the world like coal is better anything is better so uh, you are sitting on a couch right now that is in front of my fireplace because i <laughs> never use that fireplace and uh in, in part it's because of the you know polluting nature of wood burning even though it is beautiful and we all love it due to our evolutionary history it's really bad fire is so nice though they have one of those uh, fake like propane-based fireplaces at the Smoky Hill Library here. It's not the same at oh, all. Actually, I thought, I thought it was really cozy, but oh, I was really? kind of sad because uh, yesterday after work, I was running around doing errands and I had to return a library book. And the library that was near where my old house was that I still had the book from was closed for renovations and they had taped over the book drop. Mm. <laughs> so I had to go to the Smoky Hill Library, which was like an hour away. Mm. And then I got there and it was like cold and it snowed the other day and they had this fire so i was just like dropped the book in the book thing went upstairs like grabbed a magazine sat in front of the fire and i was like oh this is so nice and then an employee came and shut off the fireplace Aww. <laughs> it's like yeah we're gonna we're about to close soon we shut the fireplace off a few minutes but I was like, ah. <laughs> propane and natural gas so much cleaner i've yeah. got a fake fireplace that we almost never use just because it's a energy suck mm-hmm. but there is something fun a friend of mine has um i don't know one of those outdoor cage fireplaces it's not yeah. it's you know like not a pit i got a door and he's got he chops wood and it's it couldn't be more like rugged mm-hmm. um but you know the the crackling the, yeah. the sparks all that that's that's a lot of fun but yeah it's one of those things like i'm willing to give that up too like there's the the benefit it's relaxing and cool it's like you know what i can i'll put on like netflix has like fireplace things right <laughs> i put that on and put on a blank you know just wear a blanket and just pretend and yes i only I, I, I get a yeah. third amount of the you know you know making the number up i get like a third amount of the fun or something but mm-hmm. like it's so much it's greener that way right <laughs> yes so. it is yeah i don't know i feel like on the individual level it's the same thing as like if you personally decide to take 10 minute showers and compost your extra vegetable bits and you know like one person deciding to make a bunch of sacrifices isn't really gonna does almost nothing yeah compared to i was even gonna say like manufacturing i get so frustrated i didn't even think about the military (laughs) i get so frustrated by people who are like are switching straws and putting so much effort into like the plastic straws i'm like really the few dozen plastic straws you use in your life compare at all to a single industrial uh, company out there yeah jesus man just like one, Focus one load on, of trash yeah. versus their lifetime consumption of straws. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I've got a coworker, and it's it's laudable. There's nothing against doing that, but they take it to a pretty high degree as well. You know, we're like we went to like a company barbecue, and they brought their own uh, plaster or silverware so that they could wash it and not throw it away. <laughs> I'm like, that's dedication, right? Um, and you know, again, good for them. But it's and 
uh, it, it, I can't say anything bad against it. You know, it, if, if you want to go nuts, if everybody that, if everybody did that, it would be great. But mm-hmm. like you said, it's, but this, if everyone did that, it would make almost no difference. This isn't the level that we're going to solve the problem at. You yeah. know, we, we can all buy energy efficient bulbs and it, it won't make it. I, I don't think it'll make a, a very marginal difference. Yeah. I think if everyone used energy efficient bulbs, it would make some difference because there are so many in the U.S. Yeah. It, it, but that wouldn't, that would hardly solve the problem. Right. 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 If, if everybody, if every citizen did like basically everything that they could, it would still be a gigantic problem, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah, I think we're at the point where we're going to need to bioengineer trash-eating nanos. And <laughs> oh, yeah. I am terrified of... of Let the Greg go. No, well, no, of, of creating something that can eat plastic and gets out in the wild because one of the points of plastic is it doesn't decompose. You can use it to store your food. You can, you know, use it to protect your delicate parts of the stuff that's out in the wild because nothing's going to get through it, you know? And now, if sudden, all of a sudden, it can decompose just like any sort of paper or cloth bag would. It loses much of the utility of having something that is completely inedible. Yeah. It's fun that we've reached the point in our, uh, I guess, our history. Although I think of that as being like a retrospective word, but uh, we've reached that point where now these are things that we have to actually start thinking about. Like we can CRISPR mosquitoes out of existence. But there's a bunch of debates about, should we? Like, we've never actually intentionally just made an entire species extinct. They don't seem to be keystone species of any kind. Nothing, like, relies on them for predation or pollination. But we don't exactly know what would happen. I totally think (laughs) we should just go for it. So here's what we do. (laughs) YOLO. We, We save a few mosquitoes. And like crowd preserve them or, you know, whatever, their, their larva or something. Keep a mosquito in, farm. in the event yeah. that this is a disaster, we just reintroduce them, yeah. right? There, problem solved. <laughs> That's, I'm actually good with that. Yeah. yeah. Honestly, yeah. I mean, when you weigh it against the number of people that are killed by malaria and other mosquito-borne diseases, mm-hmm. uh, I feel like the risks, I don't know if they outweigh, like the or the, the benefits outweigh the risks, but... It's a I mean, lot of as people. As far as we can tell, the risk is really, really low. Yeah. And the benefits would be huge. Well, as far as we can tell, but again, yeah, we haven't I mean, done it before, so we have no priors here. It's not like we haven't wiped out species before. I know. <laughs> That's another thing, though, that we kind of... I said we just, just, we, we never intentionally wiped them out, but we're unintentionally wiping them out left and right. <laughs> we just have the safety switch if we can put them back if we want to, but I said we just throw science at the wall and see what sticks. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. That was a Cave Johnson quote from Portal 2. Oh, nice. <laughs> Hmm. uh steven you got a feedback for us um yeah i'll read it and it sounds like jess is gonna be the best one equipped to answer it but this was from babylon discord um i'm listening to the replacing guilt podcast and it seems to be a given that bad things happen when people don't rest uh there have been people throughout history who we have evidence literally did work all day excuse me did work all day long no restful breaks etc and work-life balance wasn't a thing either and they seem to live lives as long as people did back in the day if they didn't, it was often due to worse conditions and nutrition, like slaves, and not necessarily because of their long hours. I remember watching this conversation back and forth on the Discord and it was happening, yeah. hmm. and I feel like you had some disagreement there. That Or wait, was it you? I had agreement. Oh, someone else had disagreement. Someone was saying, like, show me an example of people who are working 16 hours a day. Right. And they were like, well, you know, like servants and stuff. And it's like, no, they would, like, rest and they would take breaks, whatever. Yeah, I mean, like, I was going to say historically... Uh, My understanding is, like, medieval peasants, for example, actually had a lot less strict work days. They had a lot of holy days. Yeah. Well, even, I don't know. um, Today is St. Yogurt's Day. Nobody works. I think we can find probably current examples of people working 16-hour days in, like, factories, but I don't think they have great quality of life. 
It's not just about their longevity either. I mean, I worked 14 hour shifts for like six weeks at one point in my life. And that was, I mean, if that was going to be my life, I probably would, I get why they put nets on those factories. (laughs) I would have totally thrown, this was only two, two floors. So the fall wouldn't have killed me, but I would have found some way to get the hell out of there. So if I knew that was going to be my life. Yeah. um, Yeah. I think you want to maximize not just for longevity, but also for quality of life and like how much are you achieving your goals and feeling fulfilled, you know, having family and friends and good but experiences. I, I think Babel's <laughs> point was that um, the with the whole bad things happen in quotes is that it seems to be a lot of um, a lot of people say that if you don't get regular rests and if you're really working that many hours, like you die from overwork after a while or your productivity just go down the tubes or, you know, various other bad things happen i think your productivity does go down the tubes and then like it varies with individuals there's definitely people that need less sleep than other people or have the ability to focus on things much longer than other people a lot of the most productive people uh i think have borderline or actually just outright mental disorders usually bipolar a lot of inventors and great artists i think were bipolar so you do have this incredibly prolific period of your life where you sleep four hours a day or you just don't sleep at all and you're constantly working on this thing and maybe you improve humanity a lot, but I don't think you have a great life after that. I think, like, I I personally agree with Babel um, based on what I've seen in my own life that, uh, yeah, probably if you're working in a factory or something, it gets really demoralizing and it's awful and people can't work that long just because it is bad. But in, in my own experience, the busiest times of my life were... Also, a lot of the happiest times, and mm. it was mainly because I was working for myself with some, yeah. you know, work for the man as well to pay the bills. But like, I would, I'd wake up, I'd go to work. In my spare time, I would work on the podcast. In other spare time, I would uh, write. In other spare time, I would be, you know, fixing up my house or uh, or buying this place and getting it gutted and fixed. And like, for the first week, it's really hard. You're fucking exhausted. You're like, oh my god, I can't do this. But after about seven to ten days of doing this it just becomes normal and you get in sort of a flow state and like i've gone entire months where basically i was working every waking hour with occasional breaks for like food and to rest up and i stayed just as productive and i was really happy for the most part uh the real downside is that my social life went to hell i lost touch with a lot of people yeah because i was constantly working i remember when you're putting this place together Mm -hmm. and i would come by and help move the occasional thing or whatever and you were always like, you never like, I can't, like, you know, I got to keep doing this. You were like, all right, cool. We're gonna put the floors down now and yeah. get the, get the cabinets and shit up. Like, and at that, like that, when that was... level of work though, too, you're doing it, like you said, for yourself, you get yeah. to see the fruits of your labor, which yeah. to me was a big exactly. part of it. I think like, it makes a lot of difference how much you actually are working on things that are personally fulfilling to you. Yeah. Or even just having something to show for it. I remember the difference, like. My first job worked at a trophy factory mm. with like six people. <laughs> mm-hmm. well, it, yeah, it was silly, but it was in high school and it was one of those, you know, like you, someone wants to order 60 soccer trophies. It's just, so. I don't know, I thought it was funny that you said that you have something to show for it. I'm imagining you having a trophy at the end of oh, the day. Okay. <laughs> what I would have at the end of the day, though, is I'd start, I'd go upstairs and I'd get like all my shit, like all the bases and all the columns that you make these things out of. Then at the day, I've got this gigantic stack mm-hmm. and I'm like, hey, that's the big pile of stuff I built today. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas at McDonald's, you're just there 
you know, like I think I mentioned my job was what they called fry bitch for you know, like a month. And <laughs> yeah, and you do, may or may not see stuff. your productivity metrics or it may or may not matter to you. Well, well, productivity, the yeah, the metrics, oh, yeah. I, I had no discernible way of A, knowing them or B, giving a shit. But at the end of the day, like the place looked the same when I left as it did when I got there. Yeah. Whereas like I didn't get to see what I did. At my current job too, I'm, I'm stoked because we're going to merge all the stuff we've been working on for like the last month. Hmm. And since we've touched every file in the in the app basically of this you know 100 million line app my name is going to be all over it and like nice. sure it's not a pile of stuff but my name is going to be all over the history of, of this thing so that that's kind of fun yeah yeah i was gonna say i find um some amount of competitiveness to actually be motivating at work too like if it's just uh your mindset is kind of okay i just need to like make the fries and like not fail at making the fries and get yelled at. Yeah. <laughs> but like, if you kind of are looking at like, oh man, like Steve's really good at making fries, but like, I'm going to make fries better. I don't know. Like no, I, at any job I've worked at, I've always kind of been able to like, if, if I'm really trying to motivate myself, like just try to find some kind of metric to measure myself against and then try to beat it. Yeah. There's definitely part of that. I mean, so I delivered pizzas through college and more or less it was luck of the draw on who got more deliveries, but it was always fun to have more, especially if you got more tips. Yeah. And so it, it was never like an official thing where we'd, you know, put money on it or something, but it was like, hey, I got five more than this guy and we worked the same number of hours or something, right? Yeah. Um, and then, and then at my current job, it's like, I try to keep up with my coworkers, the ones who started right around when I did. Mm-hmm. And so like, as long as I'm not my my own personal metric for like job security and for like self uh, affirmant and growth is like, I'm not, I'm, I'm more productive than the least productive person on the team. <laughs> so as long as I'm not that person, then I'm, then I'm feeling good. So. <laughs> It's a low bar, but yeah. I'm, I'm, that's one I can jump over. Yeah. I, I Back in the ancestral environment, I think all the work mattered. You always, you know, got some reward for what you did. Everyone depended on you. It was important. And even I think in the pre-industrial age, that was the case. Like, you could see what you made. Other people knew that, like, that's the guy who's really good at making shoes. Or if you were a servant in the house, the running of the household depended on you. Everyone could see, like if you were doing your part or not, and we all had to live in this giant manner together, whether you were one of the upstairs people or the downstairs people, it was it was like a group effort. And I don't think it's been until until the industrial age came around and people were just grinding down into like, sew this one helm for 12 hours or sharpen these needles for 12 hours and do nothing else that it's just, that's what really yeah. wears away at the soul. Even back on like the savannah, you know, if you're if you're sharpening spears all day, it might be super boring, but you know that this is crucial to the lifeblood of your tribe. Yeah. And it's like, yeah, all I have to show at the end of the day is this big pile of sharp sticks, but we're gonna use those to kill our food. And that's <laughs> right. super fucking cool. Yeah. 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 I remember my dad, um, he's a carpenter, telling me that he found his job really fulfilling because he's supplying one of the like three necessities of life, you know, like food, water, shelter. Mm-hmm. And uh Inigash, when you were talking about like that really productive period, it struck me that you were working in a lot of different types of work. That's true. Like uh, mixing it up, I think, between intellectual work like writing or like accounting and then physical work like renovating a house, I think has a refreshing uh, effect on your brain yeah. where like it would be much harder to work for 14 hours straight on just writing. Right. You'd burn out. But I think probably switching tasks like that. I know some people, not personally, but uh, people generally in the medical field tend to spend their entire lives just working. Yeah. With, you know, occasional breaks for food and sleep and that's it. And they seem entirely happy. Like, I think I think humans easily can um, adapt to working basically all their waking hours with, you know, occasional holidays and stuff. Mm. Maybe. Uh, I think 
it depends on a lot of things. It depends on the individual. Um, some people just don't have as much capacity. Some people have extra capacity. Um, I know Elon Musk works like a machine. Yeah. And, uh, and he typical minds the shit out of that, too. <laughs> He's like, oh, I, I just figured I could get twice as much work done if I did work twice as much. And it's like, yeah, sure, but that's <laughs> yeah. not how the rest of us work, man. Well, like, yeah, t- You're typical freak, minding, which is yeah. awesome. <laughs> even, even that kind of, I remember what you, what you were saying, like, you're secret to exercise is that you give yourself two choices exercise or exercise and like that works for you and it's just like yeah well that must be nice <laughs> i mean like also i should point out that Ineash, you seem like in the like upper percentile of productivity and like ability to focus i will definitely i am not there <laughs> attest to that i took a i don't know the name of the test i've still got the, tr- the results for whatever reason floating around the trunk of my car but one of my old jobs from like five years ago i had to take a personality assessment oh yeah and i got this like long printout and i had a vitality score of zero <laughs> well, what score vitality. vitality were you dead when you took it it was like i, I can't that sounds like a video game stat yeah. I love oh, it. it does well it was things like you know uh i'm not sure what all the other metrics were i just remembered that because i talked about that in my sort of exit interview what was your mm-hmm. dexterity i'll have to check not as high as it should be um but yeah i spend more or less all of my free time like recharging and doing nothing mm-hmm. which i i like doing stuff when i don't have stuff to do i get depressed so yeah so it's not like you're do. doing like it's not like you're lazy because you don't like working it, i think that's um the definition of acrasia or um i forget if it was even procrastination but the metric really or if i keep using the word metric now i hate when you get a word stuck in your head mm-hmm. um it was you're lazy if you can just sit on your ass and play video games or watch like Netflix marathon all day and just feel fine. And you probably have a procrastination or a crazy issue if you're doing these things, but you don't want to be and you feel terrible. <laughs> oh, then I'm just lazy. I, <laughs> it, it depends. But for the most part, I can just, it depends on what I guess I did with the rest of my day. Yeah. Um, if I did something productive, then I can live with it. But I'm I'm totally fine. All right, cool. It's four thirty. I'm done with work. I'm gonna go home and watch TV all yeah. night. And that's also a healthy attitude. I have a really hard time making myself relax. Um, I've had like I'm at the point where I have other people in my life checking in on me, like like once a week. Like, hey, have you had any solo time this week at all? Oh, wow. <laughs> or like, have you been sleeping at least six hours? And I <laughs> and I have to ask people to check in on me with that because I will try to. Um, you know, take a step back and look at my week and be like, man, I really didn't sleep great. I should probably sleep better next week and then I will be happier and more productive and not have mental breakdowns and stuff. Yeah, but then that next week comes around and it's like, oh, but I've been invited to this party that's uh. really late and this person wants me to stay up and help them with this problem and uh, I need to, you know, get all the safety data into this study before the safety cutoff. So I'll just work on that. <laughs> and before you know it, it's like, oh, I've given away all of my time. So, uh, we got sort of on a tangent there, but I think that was a good discussion. I agree. Yeah, no, that's interesting. Luckily, I have a small circle of friends, so not a lot of people are reaching out to me to help with things. So <laughs> I also don't think I'm in the top whatever percentile of productivity anymore. For the past several months, I've just been not doing things. I think you've been... I think you've earned it. Like, yeah, <laughs> you've been recharging, <laughs> which makes sense. I don't know. According to my hypothesis, I don't need to recharge. Doesn't mean that you doesn't mean that it's not good. Just mm-hmm. means maybe you could get by without it. Yeah, okay. or maybe you just need it less frequently than other people. Mm. Um, I've on got to a, more. Yeah, I've got another comment on replacing guilt. Okay. Um, 
This was on the actual website, again, BayesianConspiracy.com, and Tepid Gruel <laughs> is the username. They say, I think this is your best episode yet. <laughs> like, for starting that. Uh, the Replacing Guilt series has already had a positive impact on my life, and I plan to read it several times over. These days, when I hurt or offend someone, I write about it. First, I write a letter of apology. It's uncomfortable, but a therapeutic exercise, similar to how Lincoln wrote angry letters and kept them secret. <laughs> Only this time, whenever it's appropriate and I can work up the courage, I actually send the letters and make amends. Second, I write down a list of things that I learned and the ways I can use the experience to become a better person. The writing helps me move on. I have tangible documents at the end of the process, so I'm no longer afraid of forgetting what I learn. This usually stops the recurring loop of lingering guilt. I find that journaling in general helps move my thoughts along. It's like doing math on paper instead of in my head. Totally agree with that. Anyway, when I first started this exercise earlier this year, I was only writing apologies. After I read the updating from the Sucker Punch post, I started writing lists of learnings too, and it's already helping. So thanks for introducing me to Nate Sor's work. And I think that was a really great uh, reply to the post. Uh, I'm glad that that was helpful to other people to learn. I wish I had found it earlier in my life too. And uh, I like the suggestions that this person has about writing the apology letters. I want to try that. <laughs> I also like the idea of Lincoln writing angry letters. I didn't know that, and I always find it really funny to think about historical figures like Lincoln, who you think of as being these kind of monastic people, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> kind of coming home and being like, that fucking bitch! <laughs> I can't believe what that <laughs> But then he gets it out, and he's like, all right, cool, yeah. we'll go back to being chill. Yeah. yeah. I've, go ahead. I was just going to say, I'm, I'm wondering what it says about myself that I never feel the compulsion to apologize. I guess I don't hurt people. If I do, I'm not aware of it. <laughs> Partly because I minimize my interactions. I work from home three days a week. So, like, I don't even talk to people most days. <laughs> um, but the – I I don't know. If, if, I, if ever I do hurt somebody that I'm aware of, I usually try to reach out and fix it. Mm. Um, I can't think of anything that I've done where I'm pretty sure someone was hurt by something I did. And I, like, was just, oh, I'll leave it alone. Unless it was, like, 10 years ago. I'm not going to, like, find this person <laughs> and call them, right? Yeah. Um, right. Anyway, what were you going to say? I I sometimes, I don't do this like to apologize because I don't know. I guess I'm a bastard who doesn't apologize for things. <laughs> but but I, I have on several occasions like written long emails like listing my grievances or how I think something, how I think I was wronged and uh, why I'm angry about something. And then I generally do not send those emails to the people. Sometimes I will, if it's a more generic complaint about society sometimes i'll put it up on my blog uh more frequently i'll just show it to like one or two close friends and uh get their input on things but just writing it out and like maybe letting one or two other people see it really makes a huge difference yeah it's really cathartic yeah and it does actually have this feeling i've been noticing this too with um going back to writing on paper um it feels like it gets it out of your brain in a way that feels like it actually like lifts a weight off your shoulders in a way that I think talking about something hard often doesn't give you that same feeling of closure as like having written it all down or that feeling of uh, it's like now somewhere where I can manipulate it in some concrete way. I don't know if this makes sense, but yeah, yeah, I find writing about stuff to be a more productive way of thinking about things sometimes. And sometimes it helps me to 
articulate things in a way that I didn't even realize before I started writing it. Yeah. I'm like, oh, hey, I see that thing now that I wasn't thinking yeah. of before. I think the process of translating it into actual words, because um, often you feel a certain way, but it's not actually been put into sentence form. <laughs> and having to actually like put it down in a form that somebody else could read makes you have to articulate it to yourself. Here is a comment from Orb Father of Autumn, who in this case is... <laughs> it was Other David. It is Other David, yeah, David Yusuf. It's also worth noting that they change their handles on Discord at least once a month, so... Maybe once every two, but yeah, it's, it's pretty frequent. And it's <laughs> it's sort of become a thing. I am glad that um, the avatars at least stay the same, because uh, GSV recently turned into Giant Science Vehicle or something. Vessel. Giant Science Vessel. Giant Science Vessel. Which I actually like, because now I know what GSV stands for. That's not what GSV stands for. It's from the Culture Series. Uh, General Systems huh. Vessel, I think. Okay. Something. It, it's, it's a generic term for... These giant ships that do most of the stuff in uh, in their society. Okay. Yeah. Well, GSV, Giant Science Vessel, also works. Yes. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, but Orbfather of Autumn says, uh, this came in two parts. The first part is, an article I read posited the theory that part of the reason that rural and small town America is dying is that there used to be a structure where almost every small town had a few wealthy individuals who acted not only as major employers for the area, but also helped shepherd the town through bad experiences and put down roots there. The other side effect was that these liberal elite in small towns used to go to college and then come back, and they would become more liberal as a result, uh, and because they ended up being leaders of their community, they ended up pulling the entire town in the course of a generation or so to a more liberal equilibrium. But with the flight of young people to cities, a lot of towns no longer have this. And I think that this is tangential, but related to the topic of the rich abdicating responsibility, which uh, was during that. We did that. Was that the, the episode where you were Yale there? Yell post, yeah. Yeah, yeah, the Yell episode, and I, I think I also heard that somewhere. But yeah, I, I, I a lot of small towns tend to have like, a, like one major employer, one kind of like head mayor, small cabal of people that are sort of like the leadership of the area. And they're really looked up to, and the townspeople generally both follow them and expect them to help, you know, help shepherd the town uh, through through bad times, be like, you know, leaders of a tribe. Yeah. And, uh, and like he said, the rural America has been being gutted out for the past at least decade or so, because there just ain't shit there for young people anymore. They're all yeah. moving to the cities, and the towns die. I've seen... There's some, I forget if it's states or specific cities, but they're, like, actually paying people to live there. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, or, or giving them certain types of discounts on things. I forget what exactly the, the deal was, but I remember hearing one that was actually really tempting. It's like, if you if you just want to move to, like, North Dakota or something yeah. <laughs> and have your own comfortable house, like, this, there was this place that was uh, some city... That would have actually, like, subsidized your mortgage. Yeah. I heard an interview with a doctor who uh, the the town sent him off to college and helped pay for his college. But the deal was he comes back. Yeah. And he does medicine there. And they gave him, like, great, uh, great rate on his house, too. Like, all sorts of perks. But on the other hand, he also doesn't get paid shit. And he has to <laughs> live out in this rural small town where he doesn't have a lot of peers and doesn't have access to, like, the cutting edge yeah. technology. I know, like, I I have a hard time thinking about what we should do. I think this is definitely an issue, and it's, like, related to other um, similar issues, but 
like rural America is kind of collapsing. You can't like force people to stay somewhere or like you, it's not, <laughs> it seems like it would be bad too. Mm-hmm. If they're like, they're, they're leaving for a reason, if there really is nothing for them there. And it is making city life a little bit uncomfortable too. Like costs in all the cities that people are moving to are skyrocketing. Yeah. And they're getting kind of crowded and hard to uh, navigate. Yeah. And I have heard some people complaining about the, like that this was like, you know, a liberal city and now you've got people moving from all these small towns and it's changing like the politics and the social mm-hmm. norms and ways that city people aren't appreciating. All right. But yeah, what can you do? I don't know. It's, it's interesting. And I'm really curious how, where people live is going to evolve as the future goes on, especially if we end up uh, like we're, we're on the cusp of developing uh senolytic drugs that might increase people's lifespans to like 110 115 and it's somewhat frustrating working in clinical research because you get to see all this cutting edge stuff but it's not available for the general public Mm -hmm. um and i don't know how long it's going to take before you know because generally you have to go through three phases of trials and then maybe the fda will approve this as a treatment or not and then maybe it's going to be incredibly expensive and unavailable or not but car t is yeah, I knew it was on the horizon. People are thinking about developing CAR-T for solid tumors because right now um, they use it for blood cancer because your blood goes through your entire body and circulatory system. So you put a bioengineered cell and it's going to be transported where it needs to go. Mm-hmm. It's a little bit harder to make ones that are targeted towards solid tumors. Okay. But they have already started working on one. I was talking to uh, a doctor from New Jersey, actually, when I was at the investigator meeting in Dallas, who knows of a trial for brain tumors using CAR-T. I didn't even know that that was in the works yet, and, like, that's really cool. And I've also heard about... I actually heard my coworker, like, laughing and saying, like, did you hear somebody, like, is injecting their own CAR-T? There's these people called biohackers, and, like, (laughs) man, they're crazy. And then, like, I go on Facebook, and one of my friends is talking about doing this, and I'm just like, oh, yeah, who who would do these things? Certainly not me and my friends. (laughs) What what, what weirdos are these? Secretly sneaking stuff out of the lab in one of those fake shaving cans like in Jurassic Park. I would not be able to. The security is pretty tight, actually. Damn. The guy to do is uh, cut the power to the fences. Oh, be home free. I think I forgot to send you guys photos of the uh, cryo preservation. They they did a little cryo uh, no, demonstration at the. I did send that. Yeah, yeah okay. <laughs> yeah, so you see that they've got them in these like things that look like bunkers. Yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> insulated really like heavily and locked up. Mostly that's just so they don't get damaged in transit because uh, these are incredibly expensive to make and they have to be delivered to the person whose body they were taken from bioengineered and then like put back in them quickly. Hmm. So it's not even so much a security thing as it is like a, it's not like somebody's going to steal the car T it's we need to get it to this patient <laughs> and uh, quickly. But you were saying something about longevity and how it affects either cities or small towns. Um. Well, I'm curious how it's going to affect society as far as people living in, family groups people living in like i mean we've already got we were just talking with uh drake we might have ended up cutting that part out but Mm -hmm. we were talking about his mom had just sold her house and she's moving into one of those older folks community things i forget what the politically correct term for that is my grandmother's in one of those too and it's like really nice it's got like a pool and a there's also salon and there's also different kinds of yeah. places i'm not sure what this is if it's like an assisted living or if it's right. a retirement community or something yeah or if it's just like a 65 and up community that otherwise is 
pretty much like any other apartment community. But uh, if you think about it, like age 65, if people are living to like 120, <laughs> that's like half their life. Yeah. Then they've, you know, if you're retiring at that age already and then like moving into one of these retirement homes, like maybe it's good if you've only got a, I don't know, if you live to 80 and you retire at 65, you've got enough time to enjoy your grandchildren um, and live comfortably. And you're probably not like, going uh ice climbing in the winter or anything like that you know like you're gonna be like kind of sticking around your house doing low effort things maybe walking your dog but like if you stay young and healthy or like even if we make kind of moderate advances uh but like say you're still intellectually as curious and as motivated and able to work i mean people might just keep working a lot of people still are working into their I don't know, um, the neuropsychologist that I saw is definitely past retirement age. <laughs> and he was even saying, he's like, this guy lives in um, Hawaii, and he flies to Boulder to do uh, neuropsychological exams on people because he likes it. Yeah. He just didn't want to retire. And he keeps his practice open, and uh, he makes just enough money to pay for the building and the licenses and then like his, his plane fare. <laughs> So he's not actually even, like, he's retired. He's just doing this for fun. Yeah. And, like, there's a lot of people that I think are like that. You know, I know um, my, I don't, my parents aren't going to retire until they're physically unable <laughs> to, like, parents move. could be retired. They could have retired 10, well, not 10 years ago. They could have easily retired five years ago at least, though. But they just keep working because they enjoy it. Yeah. I mean, I know that there's also a lot of concern on the other side about people. We're going to acquire all of these non-productive citizens. And it's whether that's ageist or not. Mm -hmm. um, I guess... You can be non-productive and young, so yeah, it's, it's <laughs> I know ageist. a few of those. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But. well, I think there's already countries that, um, I know like a lot of Asian countries have this rapidly growing uh, older population. Right. Japan's Japan is really there, bad, yeah, because yeah, nobody's reproducing anymore because <laughs> they really need to like make a lot of social changes uh, to make that seem attractive, attractive again. Yeah. And a lot of... Uh, like the the most developed uh, wealthiest countries are experiencing the same kind of shifts where people are waiting longer and longer to get married and have kids or they're not they're deciding to have careers instead or have dogs and people are living longer and they're dying less so we're having this kind of worldwide shift towards more elderly populations and it's interesting to see to think about like how are we going to rearrange ourselves around this i wonder if that's one of the reasons our population is less violent like Peter Singer's hmm. talked a lot about the reduction of violence and Steven Pinker. You're right, Steven Pinker. Oh, what did uh, you say? I Close said Peter name. Singer. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Yeah, similar names, just swap some of the syllables. But uh, but yeah, you know, I wonder how much of it is just the fact that people are less prone to violence as they get older, and mm, there's a lot stable. more older yeah. people now. They have more to protect. Mm -hmm. Less impulsive. That's interesting. I I'd never heard that as a um hypothesis, but it makes a lot of sense. Should we go on to the second part of David's thing here? Go ahead. <laughs> okay. Uh, the second part was that, yeah, the first part was the whole towns are being hollowed out and the the, the educated aren't coming back anymore. Uh, the second part was we're having a major internal crisis in society about what the purpose of college is. Uh, David says the tradition of college was never meant to prepare you for a job. It was assumed that that would be learned on site. Or, or that you would get a job through family or social connections, and the purpose of college instead was to make you well-educated and well-rounded uh, member of society. I would like to add also, I recently read a interesting, um, I don't know, 
position hypothesis that a lot of college was about acculturating people into their social class, mm. which was one of the reasons why if you were someone from a lower social class and you got into an Ivy League college, you did so much better in your life afterwards because you were taught how to be in that social class, all the you know norms and mores of that one so you could interact with those people and work with the extremely rich um, in a way that you can't if you aren't part of that class. Um, anyways, he goes on to say that, uh, David goes on to say, uh, that middle-class America uses college as job preparation, but since the colleges they're going to are modeled on the ones that have very different expectations of how students will get their first job, it's very ineffective. Uh, although modern colleges seem to becoming, be, are becoming wise to that problem. For example, I'm 30, I'm now going back into college. And uh, the colleges I go to actually require that not only do you have experience in the lab or making products, you are actually required to do at least one internship. They encourage two. Uh, we have an entire class called Stepping Stone that's supposed to get us ready for the workforce by doing stuff like making us work on our resumes and interview people in the industry and work on how to give a two-minute elevator pitch. Man, I wish I had had that. Yeah. I well, think... like, I had that at my boot camp, but like, that's like what school I felt was missing. It seems like college is kind of starting to bifurcate, bifurcate. Bifurcate? Yes, thank you. Into the ones that are more the traditional, introduce you to a social class and teach you how to be responsible, and ones that are like, here is your job prep. We are mm. like a very long training camp. I'd like it if colleges actually combined both of those. I mean, maybe they can have different splits at the percentages, 60-40 or whatever, but I feel like uh, having someone get a well-rounded education and like the social stuff is also really important i feel like that is true even with the i mean like i think less so even with college i think that's really important in middle school and high school that mm. they we don't teach kids about like social interactions or how to manage your emotions or <laughs> any any kind of like self-care for like mental health issues and well you're expected to pick that up from your society and your culture but i think you're right you're not There's, taught it though yeah it, it would be good if we had a more i mean i know i've complained about this before but we don't have any kind of coming of age uh, I keep wanting to say ceremony or ritual, but like, I don't know. There's no process, really. I think a large part of the problem is that America has so many different cultures within it. Yeah. If anything like that was implemented on a national level, it would be extremely, I don't know, insulting. Not just insulting, but like trying to force people into taking away their culture and imposing a different culture on them. I don't even know what the culture would be. I mean, even if you go smaller like i never felt like there was a culture that i belonged to when i was living in ocean city new jersey there's not a ocean city culture no, <laughs> like it's I mean, it's made up of a bunch of different groups of people who maybe had their own cultures like but you're definitely more of the like liberal educated social class mm, i came from the lower middle class my parents are actually pretty anti uh education or like anti-intellectual and I don't think that that was exactly the norm uh, in the location that I lived, but... How did you get out of that? Because uh, generally, kids tend to follow their parents. Um, I'm not exactly sure. I almost feel like my parents were outliers, like, uh, in their families. Okay. My dad had two sisters who both uh, married up, and so I have, like, two aunts and uncles on my dad's side that are very wealthy and... My cousins who have gone to Harvard and shit, and then like, and, and then on my mom's side, they're <laughs> m much more of the like lower class kind of. Uh, I don't know. My grandpa was, was a mailman, and <laughs> so marrying up is a good strategy if you can get away with it. Yeah, 
Yeah, uh, <laughs> shrug. Uh, not not for everybody, but if it's a good fallback, if if it's it's a good uh, plan, if 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 you can and you're okay with it. Yeah, I yeah. mean, it's been one of the classic strategies. That, yeah. I mean, it's even half our fairy tales are based on that, right? Yeah. Maybe it was actually the culture that had the impact on me and my sisters because I'm thinking like all three of us kind of my sister's a veterinarian my other sister's a school teacher and I'm like a cancer researcher now and they're all probably not professions that would have been predicted based on my dad being a laborer my mom being a preschool teacher you know Mm -hmm. um all the teacher thing but also we were like I was the first one to get a college education in my family and then both of my sisters also went to college so it might have just actually been, yeah, that like the people, the the place that we lived was more upper class than my family, and us kids ended up kind of following our peers more than our parents. I don't know. That's interesting to think about. Yeah. I think I'm like so. David's experience of having basically useful college classes, I think, is probably spe- not specific, but um, uh, constrained by what he's studying. Right. So like I got a squishy science major and it's like, well, squishy, I guess, soft science, squishy science. I call biology. Okay. Uh, so, uh, <laughs> Wait, what was your major again? Psychology. Okay. Um, so like there was, there was no such thing as like, here's how you get a job in the field. It was very well right. understood that like, you're not getting a job in psychology with a bachelor's degree. Um, <laughs> yeah. Like you technically could, some people might, but not as psychologists. I'm not really sure. Yeah. I mean, my sister did, did um, education and psychology together i think that's a pretty common like that's, that's you, you want a teacher yeah yeah i think you want a psychology education for teaching but then you also have to have the education degree i think for me i'm pretty pretty vehemently anti-college in that of the, the things that you're supposed to get from it primary school should do better um you know like social <laughs> skills and all that stuff and to the extent that it doesn't you can read a book and figure that shit out yourself if you need to Shh. um i gotta take this i'm sorry no worries all right, so this is disjointed because we got a phone call distraction, but um, I think I was railing against college that my my main thing is that the the social things and the networking, I guess networking is, is something that some people can do at some, depending on your discipline and if you're actually going to school for a job, mm-hmm. but most people I think who go to college aren't. They're going to college to go to college or they're going there because they feel like they're supposed to or because it's a stepping stone to like an actual degree that they want to go towards or something. But I think for me, it's just like, like Jess said, it would be cool if they had like a, a hybrid of like, you know, 60, 40, where like part of it was like more boot campy. I'm kind of putting words in your mouth at that point, but I think that's what I was saying. Like, yeah, for me, it's just like, if you're going to have that, I think it'd be really hard to sell the rest of the college, right? Hey, do you want to do this, this 20 week program or this four year program that costs five times as much <laughs> yeah. and get, gets you, a third of the same, you know, job marketability. I don't know. I think if you're, if you're going to get educated for a job, there are ways to get totally fast track that and save yourself tens or many tens of thousands of dollars. And like, yeah, coding boot camps don't give you big O notation and uh, a large background on like, the the large um like the history the, of computer science the history of computer science <laughs> i was gonna even completely ignore that part but i was just thinking like algorithm design and stuff and design structures and all that well that's not but, even all you get you also get you know 
some exposure to the classics of literature and stuff. That's the other thing that really bugs me. Yeah. And like, so, I mean, I, and I, I get why that's valuable. I really do. I don't get why that's valuable at $8,000 a semester right. for the non-essential classes. You know, like if you're, if you're an in-school tuition student, I think college is like $15,000 at a state university, at least I think at CSU mm-hmm. a few years ago. Mm. And like, that's a stupid amount to spend on, you know, being forced to read Moby Dick. Like, I can fucking rent that book at the library, right? Um, I believe it's called borrowing because they don't charge you money for it, right? So whatever, <laughs> or, I mean, it's public domain, probably, right? I could read it yeah, online yeah. for free, like. Too. So why am I paying you seven thousand dollars to explain this book to me? Mm-hmm. Um, and why do I have to pay you seven thousand dollars to explain this book to me when all I want to do is fix cars, yeah. right? No, let me just go to an automotive school and I can learn how to fix cars in six months and go get a fucking job. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I I I can't think of what the steel man version is is like no you should go to college that's that's an important life step some of it was um the scarcity of education but like just in the past 10 years you can learn anything on youtube now like it used to make sense for you to go somewhere specialized to learn special um you know learn from experts about a bunch of different subjects that are culturally or uh Historically significant. Historically, yeah. yeah. But like now, it, anything you want to learn about, yeah, you can go to the library. Um, I have two comments about this. The first one being that historically, this came from a time when less than 10% of the population went to college. And if you were going to college, you made it. And so everyone knew if you want to get a good job, like be one of the smart, educated people that are looked up to, you go to college. And that's done. Now that, you know, a much larger percentage of the population goes to college. They don't even really know what the college is for. They just know all of society is saying, go to college if you want a good job. And the message has not been updated for how things have changed. Right. And it definitely wasn't the case 10 years ago, 12 years ago when I was graduating high school, that was still drilled into you. Like you need to go to college and that'll get you a job. And that's really important. And we're still at the age where... And that's changing slowly now. I think it is. But But even now, I think... Um, 18 year olds. I went to a high school graduation uh, last year. My cousin graduated high school mm-hmm. and she's doing it smart. She's going to community college first, which is if you're going to go to college, that's the way to do it. I should have mm-hmm. done that. It's the, it's the same books and like it, you're getting the same credentials. Um, well, you're getting different, you're getting different credentialed, uh, like here's my certificate, Yeah. but it's, it's the same. Well, education. you can also knock out a bunch of your requirements too, that aren't really related to your subject. Like that- I was going to school for illustration and literature, but I had, um, calculus and for some reason, like rhetoric and persuasion. And like, th- there are a bunch of required classes that are kind of general. My other comment- that's, what I, that's what I did for community yeah, college is knock out the core just, credits that are yeah. expandable to whatever degree you're getting. But my point is you could knock those two years off any off of any education. Yeah. And, you know, if you want to major in literature or philosophy or psychology, let me just go to school for two years and get the degree for that. Don't make me take underwater basket weaving and you know, <laughs> art of the 1600s. And I basically agree with you. Uh, and our society has swung too far to the, you know, just get general education and everything, in my I, opinion. Uh, but David Youssef did point out on the Discord, so I'm bringing this up now. Uh, it can get too specialized. He said that in Egypt, both his parents are highly trained, highly educated professionals. I forget exactly what he said they do, but, like, his dad is in a very prestigious position uh, doing something really fucking complicated with engineering. I don't know. But he said, and he doesn't know who Napoleon is, despite the fact that Napoleon invaded Egypt. (laughs) Like, there is just all sorts of basic common knowledge that his parents don't know at all. And generally, people in his society don't know at all that he thinks 
people probably should know. I, I can see Over that argument. Like, their, their specialization starts in fifth grade in Egypt. Yeah, well, I was going to say, I could feel that, like, I could see that being the kinds of things they teach you in the lower levels. Yeah. And then by the time you, I think, probably by the time, by the time, time you get to high school. that much money per year of college, you probably don't want to. I think even in high school is the point where, like, I think that's a good point to start specializing, but yeah. I think specializing by fifth grade is a bit extreme. Yeah. And, and I get historically where you know, this is how colleges came about. And I can only speak to how things are done in the, in the West, um, like, or at least in the United States. But my, my thing is, yeah, I, I was talking with, um, uh, one of our, uh, frequent visitors to the local meetups about, um, uh, Hannibal, the, the military leader. Mm. And I had no idea what, you know, what age this guy was around. I was like, was it 2000 years ago? Was it 1500? Was it 500? Okay. And like, uh, I, but if I, if I was curious, I could watch a history lecture on YouTube. Right. Okay. Um, and granted I should probably know this, but I don't, I'm but I mean, you knew at least that it was before gunpowder. No. Okay. <laughs> I, right. I, well, I know I knew that there were elephants involved. Yes. So I, I, I figured if you could shoot the elephants, they wouldn't have been half as scary. So, <laughs> okay. um, yeah, my, but my, my thing is like, yes, I think there's, definitely an asset to having a, a modestly rounded education so that you're familiar with, you know, you shouldn't be able to enter society without knowing what the word utilitarianism is. You shouldn't be able to uh, not be able to like do basic, basic math, math and spelling and yeah. science facts, all, all the core stuff. Um, but yeah, I think the, the annoying part for me is that, all right, cool. No, but you have to do that at college where you're going to spend twice as much as what your parents bought their house for. And you'll be paying this off for 35 years at 9% interest and go fuck yourself. Is it 9% interest? I think 7 or 9. It doesn't matter. It depends I on where you get your loans loan. I thought student loans had a really good interest rates. I think it depends. It might be new also. Like, okay. they might have been trying to improve more recently. My point is it's insane. Yeah, student, yeah. student loan debt is the largest uh, debt deficit in the country. Yeah. And that's including all the mortgages and credit cards in, you know, combined. Mm-hmm. And that blows my mind. Combined? Wait, Combined? Wait, each, in, whatever, okay, individually. Okay, yeah. so, um, okay. But we out, we, it, student loan debt outpaces both of those. Okay. Um, and it's like, and I know I sound and like... it's put disproportionately on the young who yeah. are making the least. Yeah. And then you, you go, you spend $130,000 getting your education, and then you're told, oh, you don't have really, you don't have any life, you don't have any experience, we're not going to hire you. Right. And it's like, oh, so you want, me to, you want me to be able to do my job, not just know, be able to write, cite off facts about, you know, the origin <laughs> of computing. It's like, yeah, I want you to be able to fucking code. It's like, okay, well, they didn't teach me that. They, they taught, they taught me Alan Turing's favorite birthday cake flavor, right? <laughs> so, like, it, I mean. Probably didn't go quite that far, but. Yeah. I, and I'm being, I, my hyperbole is for, for comedy. I'm glad it landed. But mm-hmm. the point is, it's like, I, that really pisses me off. Yeah. I, I, I can't think of, if you want to get into a job, go learn how to do that job. And yes, you should have a well-rounded education, but you should be A, getting that earlier on, or B, doing that for free in your own time. There's some jobs I don't even know how people get into because uh, I know that this is a common joke among millennials uh, where they want you to have a certain number of years of experience in order to get into various fields and it's like how do you get those years of experience basically like a lot of companies you have to do free internships in order to get the experience mm, it's a fucking racket or First like, they want a number of free years out of you yeah three years experience for an entry-level job uh-huh. and it's like where am i going to get an entry-level job you know without three years yeah, experience? No, nobody will hire you unless you've got a, several years of experience doing something but like you're, you're you don't. Yeah, it's nuts. <laughs> you've, you've just graduated school. The old, the uh, and then, like, I know a bunch of people from uh, New Jersey, like, a bunch of my friends where I used to live are people that have, like, a college degree and have just been working as, like, 
a waitress for two years while like trying to apply for some job for the degree they have or like yeah. working several part-time jobs and yeah. why aren't millennials buying diamonds oh because yeah. i'm bagging groceries and i'm having to fill out applications that make me upload my resume and then enter it again on the next page cash. yeah so delivering like, like meals on fucking uber eats and like yeah and that, that's that's just the the nature of how it is so do you, you have a feedback mm, i'll let just take the next one there was somebody um complaining that the discord killed the reddit and i feel a little bit bad about that but not that bad because i'm on discord a lot more than i am on reddit i'm kind of okay with that too like reddit's great but i only see some of the posts that come up on there unless i go manually check the subreddit which i almost never do i just scroll through the front page i'm um, not nearly as okay with it but i'm just wondering how to how to resolve the situation oh well um, i don't think there's anything you can do to resolve the situation but i really really like reddit and those sorts of forums because like you put together an entire coherent thought with some thesis and you know you have a maximum of like three four maybe five paragraphs if it starts getting more than that it's like long form so you try to limit yourself to that and it's 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 preserved there's an archive there's a back and forth that you can do it feels very structured and i like the the historical archive aspect of it and you don't have to be sitting there to have the conversation exactly you can you can hit send leave for two hours and come or a day and come back and reply and people still be there and and discord is much first of all intensely time consuming because you're going back and forth one line at a time and since you're only doing one line at a time and you're going back and forth with someone it can take hours to go through a conversation instead of just putting forth your thesis and someone putting a counter thesis and you have to be really involved in it and i mean I understand this is what builds communities because people sacrificing their time to interact with each other is that sort of thing that you need. But God, it's a not, not only is it a huge, much bigger time investment, it's also ephemeral. It's it's like... Really? Because it's archived too. And yeah, it's, it's actually archived, like but really, it's pretty searchable. It's disgustingly um, hard to catch up if you like even leave for an hour and a half while there's a conversation going on. Yeah, like it's searchable, but only if you like want to if you know what to search for like whereas with a subreddit you can look at like you know the the title of the post and then scroll through and, and because in subreddit so everyone is kind of succinct and on topic it doesn't take nearly as long to catch up whereas the discord is like going back and forth and there's a tangent people go off on for 15 minutes and then they come back and and you're like I, I just read all that it didn't matter and you have to do scrolling instead of like having these you know replies and reply to replies it's just a constant scream of consciousness scroll and the whole thing I find very community building, but also like it's not it's not good for the conversation of the type that I prefer to have on these things. So I really I really miss the subreddit, but uh, I mean it's not entirely gone. But it it yeah a lot of the energy has been pulled into the Discord instead. Yeah, I I totally feel where you're coming from, and if I said I was fine with it replacing it, I'm not. I guess what I meant was. Um, well, I guess I hadn't fully thought it through because you make perfectly good points and they're they're all entirely truthful to me. So I think the what would be ideal is if people like, hey, slow discussion on Reddit, you know, hangout sessions on Discord, because that's basically all you can do. Yeah. Um, on the other hand, I mean, it ha- it's really engaged people. Yeah. People like are on there all the time, including myself. There's a ton more going on on Discord than we got on even our busiest subreddit threads. So, I mean, it's a good thing, too. This is the sort of thing that sucks people in. Yeah, I feel like it's got a lower entry barrier. Yes, absolutely. Because with the subreddit, you do feel some pressure, like put together a good, you know, paragraph form, short essay sort of thing. Whereas on Discord, you're just kind of chatting with your friends, like yeah. we're doing now. 
Yeah, and you don't have to, I guess this is kind of the same thing you said, but like, write a whole long thing to get involved. You can kind of just very uh, easily slip into a conversation like, oh, well, that wasn't my experience. I went there this year and that thing happened. And, yeah. you know, I guess it kind of feels uh, less intimidating. Yeah. For, especially for people just starting out or who aren't really comfortable with the long form post style. Right. I, I think that maybe uh, as time goes on, the community might like kind of divide itself into the, the here's where the people that want to write essays go and then here's where the uh, people that want to chat go. Well, I think I kind of suspect they already did. I think you go well, to the SSC I, subreddit. I don't know. Want. I think just if the, dis- the Discord's new, so yeah. maybe it's just kind of people are playing with it and eventually like... I don't know. But the Basin Conspiracy subreddit was never all that big, especially when you compare it to something like the uh, Slate Star Codex subreddit. Yeah. That thing's huge, and all the people who like that sort of thing go there. And with us, it seems to have been really the Discord that took off. Like, the, the subreddit was always interesting, and we had we had some good comments on there, you know? We always had something cool to read, but it, uh, it, it, it never popped as much as the SSC one did. I mean, but to be fair, SSC also has about a thousand, or at least... 500 times the yeah. readership we do. And I, th- I think there's a Discord, too, and I'd be curious to see how many people are on the Discord versus their hmm. subreddit. I can tell you how many people are on the Slate Stark's Codex subreddit really quick. The problem is you don't want too many people on the Discord because once it gets up into hundreds of people all trying to talk at once, it's like everyone trying to talk in a large cafeteria to everyone else. I'm on a couple like that, and I'm never on... Well, let me rephrase that. I've been on a couple like that. I'm never on them. Like the Doof Media, um, they've got... 40 different channels which is nice because everyone can actually keep the conversations in there and i think it's necessary because because it's insanely active yeah you can't talk with 12 people at once right so they make it work but i will occasionally go there to skim but i've never participated there because i i don't like like you said unless i'm ready to sit down and have a conversation which i never am (laughs) i'm ready to leave a comment and leave Mm -hmm. which is what i do on the discord on our discord too Mm -hmm. um but yeah, Slate Star, Slate Star Codex has 21.6 thousand subscribers, Jeez. and the Bayesian Conspiracy has 480. Mm-hmm. Um, that said, I brought this up because somebody posted, uh, what's Rosie Roseman posted on our subreddit. Oh my god. Did you read the essays? Uh, I read the essays and I got involved in a two-hour conversation. Oh, I haven't seen Oh, not on the subreddit. This. Oh, on the subreddit. No, no, no. He apparently was told, hey, go to the Discord. And by so me. And showed up in the Discord. Oh, by you? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, I had said- Thanks, Steven. Well, now Thanks I need to go find. Two hours, now I need to go back. find this in the Discord. Which Wait, now sucks. you gotta send it to me, and I can, I can lose two hours too. So yeah, well, <laughs> I can send. It's on the base. It's on r slash the Bayesian conspiracy. Yeah, but no, that but, does suck because now you've been left out of the conversation, and you, it's almost impossible for you to get into it. Yeah, I, I can go. Wa- I can go see what happened, but I can't get involved. That yeah. sucks because I'd have liked to because I just got around to reading the one on death today, and it was it was nice. I loved the references. Hashtag Wheel of Time, but uh, I disagreed with it, and yeah. I thought that that have been a fun conversation to have, but. Now it's already been had, so and and once yeah, like once the conversation moves on, it moves on. Whereas on the subreddit, you can come back, you know, days later and add a thing. I can ping ping Rosie on the um, Rosie. The, Rosie might not want to interact with you after um, how how I interacted with Rosie. <laughs> I will. I'll mention that. I gotta see what this is now. Well, uh, in well the, basically, I was like, "There's a deathist in my house." GTFO, motherfucker. <laughs> so, and, which is, first of all, it's not my house, and second of all, as a good rationalist, I shouldn't be all like, "Get the fuck out of here with your deathism." But, uh, but that's totally what I did because I was I was grumpy, I was in pain, and I was like, "Fuck deathists." <laughs> in 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 your defense, Rosie said here, and I keep saying Rosie. I'm pretty sure it's a guy, but Rosie Roseman is there. Um, 
Well, that's right their handle. handle. Yeah. You, you weren't saying. Well, but I'm short. I'm shortening it to the first half. I'm not yeah. sure if they want that because okay. too many Whatever. syllables and talking. Meh. <laughs> anyway, um, I really do feel like I want to start a debate here. Or excuse me, I really do want to start a debate here. I feel like I'm in the right. But the only way to test a sword is combat. So fight me, please. Right. So Aww. they they totally it's wanted whatever they got. <laughs> I, I assume <laughs> you don't, you don't go into Fight Club to get your you know you go into Fight Club to get into a boxing match, not to get your shit you know to get your teeth knocked out. So. Right. But every now and then you go in lo- expecting a boxing match, and someone like brings a shiv and puts it in your testicle. Yeah. And like so, this is. I didn't think this would be Fight Club. Right. So if you if you shivved their testicles, then maybe they weren't expecting it. But <laughs> right. if if you just if you hit them in the face, I think that's what they wanted. I I did like the post. I their essay, in the sense that I enjoyed reading it. It was well put together. I just didn't agree with it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's worth it's worth checking out. Mm-hmm. You can find the archived version on the subreddit r slash the Beijing conspiracy. But. I guess, or search deathist on the Discord and see if it comes up. I'm not sure I actually use the word deathist. I'll see if I can find, like, I'll just search for the word Reddit and see if it comes up. But, yeah, I don't think it's going to happen. Yeah, I'll find it. Reddit. I read first. Search. Hey, Rosie Roseman, I'm new here. Perfect. Found it. So do I just click this thing and it takes me to that chain? Yes. It does. Yeah. Oh, this was like a five sentence thing. Like it was like a five back and forth. This wasn't that long, or does it go on? It goes on. How do I get to the rest of it? You just keep scrolling down. I did. It didn't. It's gone. Oh, really? Let me try again. All right, I'll figure this out later. <laughs> it goes on, and like three other people jumped in as well. Oh man, this did go on for a long time. Oh yeah. It went on until I left work at five thirty, and then it went on a little bit longer. <laughs> oh no. Yeah, people got mean. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, but sort of not sorry also. Well, I will... I still want to read this. So I'm oh, gonna... yeah. I can't wait to read the drama. <laughs> hey, Thanos gif. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I can't wait to see how this becomes relevant. You're right. This is going to take forever to get cut, cut up on. Uh-huh. 275 new messages. 300 new messages. Yeah, see? This Discord's impossible. It's fun. I'm glad it's a place to hang out, but it does not replace long-form chatter. No. Yeah. I think that's just... They're just... Hmm. They're, they're just different two styles. Different yeah, yeah, they do different stuff. And I'm also sad that the one of them has suffered due to the other one. Although I don't think the subreddit is killed, killed. I just think it's anemic now. Yeah. So I guess this is our way of saying, hey, everybody, do more subreddity stuff. Or once you're done talking a whole bunch on the Discord, copy it all into a single file and put that on the subreddit as a comment. Yeah, maybe we could try to norm... Uh people taking any long-form comments that they write on Discord and cross-posting them. Or maybe there's a bot for that. There's probably a bot for that. I don't... I wouldn't Some kind of scraper. Yeah. I don't know. But that also took away part of the point, right? Yeah. <laughs> and I know that I would have... If it was on the subreddit, I probably would not have been nearly as attacky as I was on the Discord. That's because you're kind of like, I need to reply while they're at their keyboard. Rather than like, they'll see this in two hours, right? Yeah. And I can take some time to... To compose a... <laughs> to calm down. Yeah. <laughs> Basically. Okay. Um, I had two short ones that I think I just wanted to say because they made me happy. Um, Bio Putin, or Putin on Reddit said, just to put it out there, grammatical genders in Spanish follow the final vowel of the noun, such as A for feminine and O for masculine, 99% of the time, rather than just following social conventions about gender. Which is not to say that there aren't gender stereotypes in Spanish-speaking countries, or that language doesn't affect the way we think. 
native Spanish speaker here, by the way. If you want to talk about wacky, check out German grammatical genders. Mm. There are three, and there are a ton of fairly inconsistent rules. I still love German, though. That's fun. I like uh, hearing from people who actually live in those cultures, because obviously I'm, I'm familiar with some language structures that are different than mine, but I don't know what it's like to actually have grown up speaking that language. And whether or not like you are aware of how much it changes your thinking about different things. I'm curious about the three genders in German. The gender. I'm guessing there's one that's neuter or yeah. okay. I well my family lived in Germany for a few years, so I had like up to a kindergarten level of learning German. Hmm. Which isn't very much, but yeah, they, they have the neuter gender, which is generally only used for certain objects. Hmm. Yeah. Um I'm reminded of the like ancillary justice yeah. series where I remember the point of that book for people that aren't familiar with it is there's a future society where everyone uses the word she because humanity has been taken over by this. I, they never really specified whether it was like a future human like subspecies or actually just an alien race, but it was humans. Okay. It was humans. So anyway, the dominant culture just uses she as a, they, the, the standard gender. Yeah. And then they don't have gendered language, really, and to represent that, everyone in the book is she. Yeah, except for like when they would, because it was from the point of view of a character coming from this dominant culture, but they would uh, interact with people from other cultures that they had colonized who would still sometimes use their gendered languages, and then this character like is thinking, like, oh, I realized that uh, I messed up, and... I'm supposed to say he for that one. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and now they're looking at me weird. Like, oh, I got to remember to do that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Why do they do that? That's weird. But um, I also remember that they were talking about trying to trying to get the same effect um, when they translated this book into other languages and it being really interesting and difficult, but having different, different, different difficulties in different languages. Mm -hmm. Like the ones where they don't have a bunch of gendered pronouns, you lose a lot of the effect. So they had to find other ways of making things like default feminine in order to give you that kind of like, this is another culture. Um, uh, but then like German, for example, it's like, oh no, now like this is going to mess things up because it, there gets to be a point where things stop making as much sense if you're not using the uh, correct gendered word. Yeah. So do you, um, the, uh, God, Terra Ignata series by Ada Palmer. Did you ever read that one? No, I haven't. It's an interesting society where uh, the, the there is a social norm against using any sort of gendered language at all. And so everyone is just referred to as they, them. But the, uh, the person who's telling the story, the protagonist and the narrator, is slightly mentally unhinged and also gives zero fucks about social norms. <laughs> so he goes around gendering everyone, but he genders them the way he wants to. <laughs> so uh, there's this one female character who's like an aggressive assassin type, and he always refers to her as he, uh, because he's like, <laughs> obviously, you know, this is violence that a male would do, so he's a he for me. And anyways, it's, it's really interesting, but uh, one of the interesting problems, Ada, I you know read some interviews with her, one of the inter interesting problems she ran into is that in Poland... Uh, uh, there's, you know, they have their own culture wars right now. I did not know any of this because I don't keep huh. up with my home country. Uh, so I learned it from reading her interview. But uh, in Poland, the far right is pushing for gender neutral everything, more or less. Huh. Whereas the far left are the ones who say like, no, I'm a doctress and this is a you know, like pilotess <laughs> and all that. 
they're very much pointing out that uh, women can do these things just as much. So acknowledge that they're women when they uh, when they have the job. You know, yeah. Don't call a woman sir if if you're addressing her, and don't call a captain captain if it's a woman captain. Use the correct term, captainess, or whatever the Polish equivalent is. <laughs> and uh, and so she said. So when it was translated into Polish. It looked like in my society, the far right had won and had imposed <laughs> their view of society when in fact the exact opposite is the case, you know? And so they had to like redo it for the Polish version, which I was like, that is that is just like shockingly interesting how, yeah. how translating things into different cultures can drastically alter what you're saying in the book. The thing that, that is interesting. Yeah, the thing that strikes me as interesting about that is that it's kind of the way we have the weird like red blue tribe things where things that aren't necessarily even related to uh-huh. your being conservative end up getting lumped there. Yeah. And that ends up being like you would think the like flying the American flag. That should be a thing any citizen could be proud of, but it's very much associated with the uh, red tribe. That makes sense from a conservative perspective though. I'm thinking even like things about like gun control. Uh Wait, how does how does that only red tribe gets to fly American flags make sense? Well, because of uh, I want to say jingoism, but like oh nationalism, nationalism, yeah. Because the blue tribe wants to change the nation and, and make it better, whereas like, I think if you're... the blue tribe has just as much right to be part of this nation as anyone else. I totally agree, but I'm saying where I think it comes from. Okay, no, yeah. actually, you got, yeah. Uh, now that I'm thinking about it, it like the it, nation as a whole is more left than it is right. Yeah, I now, mean, flying I, I... a Confederate flag definitely signals <laughs> <Yeah. something. laughs> right. Um, yeah signals that you like losers uh, <laughs> yeah that just shows how uh ingrained it even is that i it's like well obviously flying a flag is red tribe and now that i'm thinking about it, it's like oh no i could easily like think Seems of an opposite world where fly like you know maybe uh conservatives are disappointed with the direction the, co- the country has gone and mm-hmm. <laughs> don't want to fly a flag they're the ones arguing in favor of burning flags and stuff <laughs> yeah. yeah or flying confederate flags instead yeah yeah, or maybe the, the original flag with only thirteen stars. Right. <laughs> um, there was. Uh, oh, I remember. This was back to the gendered language. So, my first piece of like feminist literature that I read that I actually liked. The first one I read was like it was the last chapter of the God Delusion. It might have been the last chapter. Anyway, Dawkins was talking about how you know like he is the default and everything, and that he now makes an effort to use she for the default for everything. Hmm. Which I'm now it's t- fifteen years later. Maybe now it should be neutral for every everybody instead but i like that so and i noticed this it jumps out of me like on brian dunning's podcast he's like you know a lot of it is like medicine and you know woo or something so yeah when you see your doctor and he says this and i'm like you could just say she or they the doctor but my my default for years was using she and i i liked that unless you're talking about a bad you know uh, an individual yeah. um or, inter- or a group of deplorables then you could just you could use he's right <laughs> that- um that Women can be just of, as deplorable yeah. as men, sir. Right, right, right. But okay. but I but this way, if if someone was just reading the one thing I wrote and say I was talking about, you know, whatever uh, oh. hate speech or terrorism or something, mm. um, in which case it's still men nominated. Go us. Um, not hate speech, terrorism. I uh, I hate that personally. I was kidding. Okay. All what right. do you think? I was actually happy about that. Eh, I don't know, man. <laughs> it's, it's, it is the way things are, though. Like it is always men when it's a group of bad people and. Usually, statistically, that's also true. Yeah, white guys are crushing it in the in the mass shooting category, right? You know, so yeah. um, there's other factors that by all go means can try and take that mantle from us. Yeah, uh, I'm please. <laughs> I'm I'm not I'm not attached to the to the people. I, I guess I'm not. I don't feel any attachment Did to being you know white. That the so very like, first school shooter was a woman, though. There we go. Yeah, all that right, was pioneer. interesting when I found that out. Cool. Um. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Well, what oh, was the, what, was the, what was the body count, man? I don't know. 
Well, then, you know, I'm just kidding. Sorry. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I And I, I, I feel no attachment to being a white guy. So, like, I, I don't... If someone's like, oh, you know, this is associated with white people, I'm like, oh, that sucks. Like, I, but I, I don't feel anything personal about it, other than the fact that I know that some idiots in the internet will assume the worst of me because I, the color of my skin. But by all means, you racist, you racist pricks, go forth and be that way. I remember uh, in the early 2000s, a lot of uh, gaming materials that were coming out, rule books, role playing rule books in particular, since they have to use like a lot of examples of this player does this and, you know, he does this, she does that. Uh, one of the ones I read was really interesting. They had all odd-numbered pages using he pronouns and all even-numbered pages using she pronouns. Nice. Which was really cool. And uh, a different one had, like, odd-numbered chapters where he's and even-numbered chapters were she's. That's fun. Yeah. It'd be fun with... It'd be even more fun with the just doing web page. If, yeah. Like, yeah. Part, part of the tutorial... Like, if, if it's it the same, if it's the the same paragraph going on to the next page. Yeah. yeah. Um, I could see that being distracting, though. Totally. Yeah. It would have to be intentional and, and hilarious. And generally, they always keep the, the um, examples in, like, little letter boxes, so they're contained on one page. Mm, okay. Yeah. Like, here's the little insert that's on this page, explaining like how that. this thing happens. Yeah. And it sounds more inclusive. Granted, it's less inclusive than we are now in 2019, mm-hmm. but but I love I love the... You said that was in the early 2000s? I think so, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's forward-thinking. Yeah. Um, well, it was already a big thing back then. Yeah, but it was less heard, I guess, right? Like, maybe. I don't know. No, it was already pretty pretty big. I was, yeah. I was a lot young of people in the early 2000s. So. still making efforts. Early, um, some of the earlier feminist uh, waves, they were already, you know, trying to fight back against the he as default and come up with uh, new ways of, like, for a while it was he or she, and then that's mm-hmm. incredibly clunky. Uh, the, the singular they is a more recent solution to this problem but i have seen a lot of the just occasionally switching from he to she i and i i use they almost every time now mm-hmm. um i've seen singular they i think my entire life yeah like in in official manuscripts it was always he or she because they was considered ungram ungrammatical grammatically incorrect i don't know yeah but that but was like a more in, recent decision yeah but in in casual conversation they was used all the time yeah i mean it's again it's older than singular you yeah yeah <laughs> So. All right. Do we have more feedback? I got a quick one, and this should have gone right after the college one. Okay. Uh, closed Lime-like Curves wrote in and said, or I'm not <laughs> sure where this came from. I think the Discord. Um, Probably. But yeah. it was, yeah. all I have to say is that I'd bet my ass off that if colleges were teaching stuff like what the right thing to do is, there'd be a lot of complaints, probably including from this podcast, on how colleges nowadays are just brainwashing and they've abandoned their original goal of actually teaching people or helping them acquire knowledge. I think you're probably right. Um, I think I think, would... I think a mandatory philosophy, like rough rough overview of philosophy, should be included. Mm-hmm. Um, but like, but if it was, not, you would not, complain. Not, not in college. Okay. Um, I, I frankly, like again, my. So I think this is consistent with my anti-college rant. Um, but just like put this in high school. Okay. Everybody should get through school, you know, knowing what an atom is, you know, what evolution is, what um. How think, sex works? Yeah, how sex works. <laughs> Trying to get a big distance. Sex makes Bas- babies. You know, they, yeah. they, they, they should know their numbers. They should know. You, you know, can't get a man pregnant. Basic history. Yeah. Um, I remember in BBC Sherlock. I think it might have been the second episode of season one, back when they were still good. Um, there was this whole. Wasn't the second episode. Doesn't matter. Um, that like Sherlock didn't know what oh, yeah. where where the earth was in the solar system or something right, he's like yeah. how does that help me be a detective yeah like, you know <laughs> so he, he's like you know why would i know that i can identify 19 different types of cigarette ash i don't need to know, it, you know i think it was that he 
he didn't know that the earth revolved around the sun or something? That might have been it. It was some, it was some yeah. glaring thing. Yeah. Um, so you shouldn't be able to graduate high school not knowing that. But you shouldn't have to pay... But he also had a good point. But that wouldn't help him solve any mysteries ever. Yeah, yeah. exactly. So to the, to, the, to the extent that you just really care about your one thing, that's fine. But Sherlock also strikes me as the kind of person who didn't pay attention in school if he had to go to school, right? Mm-hmm. I'm not sure what bbc's sherlock canonical upbringing was like it doesn't really matter but i think they have some uh episodes where like when they meet minecraft they talk about it and yeah i feel like um they kind of made that character as like a asperger's like slash autism uh walking stereotype character totally <laughs> uh but that does also ring true with uh, i know a lot of people that have autism or add like tend to not do well in the conventional schooling atmosphere uh, I mean, myself in particular, uh, there's a thing of being able to hyper-focus on your favorite thing forever, and then maybe that person just ends up being a geologist because they love rocks. Yeah. And, uh, and yeah, if, I, if your I kind favorite of, thing ever can also make you enough money to live on, then go nuts. Yeah, and I kind of want to push back on, I was leaning into the, yeah, like, you should be able to learn these things at these grades and whatever, but actually, like, I am, if I had a kid, I would radically unschool them, and i I think that I don't think that it should be necessary for someone to know something. Maybe uh, in order to be in a certain job, like if you want to be a healthcare professional, you should understand evolutionary biology, or like on a basic level, like cellular biology stuff like that. But I strongly disagree. Okay, what I you- think to have a functioning society, you really need some things that everyone in the society has to know. Everyone needs to know how to read. Uh, to everyone- the point of enforcing it, though. Yeah. Everyone needs to know how to do some basic math. Everyone should know the at least the most basic laws that we live by. And a few things like why medicine works, what vaccines are, those sorts of things that are important to a society running, I think, should be, if you haven't taught your children this, not only are you doing them a disservice, you're making society worse off and hurting all the rest of us. Yeah, unfortunately, most like people don't learn these things from their parents. These are things you learn from school or... Yeah. But then, like, most of what I learned was not from school or my parents. And the reason I am less paranoid about the world becoming idiocracy if we get rid of the school system is that people do really well in radical unschooling environments. They tend to pick up everything they need to know anyway. And that, I think, encourages kids who are lifelong learners because they don't learn to hate learning. Right. I, I, I think you guys aren't disagreeing as much as you think you are but i was going to push back with the same thing just as hard with uh reading because mm. that, that is like the one thing that you need to get out and do whatever and you, you can't self-educate on your favorite subject if you can't read yeah and if no one made you learn and your parents were like oh they don't you need don't, to read yeah, you don't have to make kids learn they they teach themselves they many do i guess I'm, I'm, i can imagine circumstances where it's like nope we just work with uh or, you know, you, you can even just rule out the whole religious fundamentalist where they don't want them to learn how to read because it's dangerous and they could read the wrong book. But um, fuck it. My, you know, our family has been uh, craftspeople for 500 years. You don't need to learn how to read or you don't need to le- read any of the classics li- of literature to be a good woodworker. So you're going to just, well, I'll teach you how to work wood. You can read a tape measure. And that's all you'll need to learn how to read. Um, I could imagine... You're still thinking of a education system where it's being handed down to the child by someone. This is, like, radical unschooling is ch- the child directing their own education. Oh, the I parent was, wouldn't I be was... able to say, like, we're craftspeople and you're going to be a craftsperson, too. The point is the, the parent helps the kid um, 
gather whatever information they're interested in or help them if they get stuck, but otherwise, like, minimal intervention. Then I guess I'd, I'd mandate that the parent actually do that. Yeah. Yeah, so, it, yeah, I guess I don't know what radical unschooling was. Um, How many children can we... So I don't know very much about children at all, having <laughs> not ever had one and having not been around very many for at least a couple decades now. But how many children can we actually trust to learn how to read on their own? Because if it's less than 98%, I would be for, you know, forcing them to learn how to read. Um, I don't know how you learn to read just by looking at squiggles. Someone needs to show you how to read. There's, um, I'm remembering this. I don't even know if, whether to call it an experiment or an intervention or what, but um, somewhere in Rwanda, I want to say, that, uh, some humanitarian group just built a, a bunch of community centers and put computers with internet access there, and the kids um, educated themselves to the point where some of them were sending themselves to college overseas, and nobody was teaching them how to do anything, but they, by messing with the computers, talking to each other, and trial and error were able to teach themselves to read, to speak multiple languages, all kinds of, you know, like, all the information in the world is now at your disposal. And if you're a kid who lives in a village who maybe has fun by, like, kicking a ball around <laughs> um, or, like, playing with a cat, uh, you're gonna fucking love to learn. I mean, like, it's also probably really, like, an environment that pushes home how important being educated is and how much you can, you know, um, improve your life circumstances. That is interesting. I, I wonder, like specifically, because I, I don't know. I mean, if I was, if you locked me in a in a room with a with a book that was written in uh, Arabic, I I could spend the rest of my life in there and never understand a word of that book. Mm. Right? It's just squiggles on a page. Right. I would need someone to show me what squiggles mean what, and then I could piece together the rest. Well, you can do that with the internet because the resources are out there. Right. Yeah. But that's what I mean, if, like just basic literacy. Right. Um. And so if these kids were really just given a computer and like just, you know, you can figure out how the mouse works, you can figure out how to play with the computer, but if they could figure out how to Google teach me English and, or without being able to read anything or write themselves, Hmm. I mean, you'd just be striking keys that all look like just, you know, elvish to you, right? Well, apparently the first thing these kids did when they watched them was look up soccer games. (laughs) They all really loved soccer. soccer. Uh, I don't know if they knew how to spell it or if they were kind of just clicking around and like navigating by images. I'm not sure. I actually want to, um, I'll, I'll see if I can find the article about this and link to it because I'm curious to follow up on that more. And I'm really curious more about detail. what their baseline was going in. Yeah. Um, yeah, you're right. You'd have to know something. You can't even Google soccer. I think it's very that. hard to like get to a certain age and not have learned anything. Yeah. It's true. Even if you go to a soccer stadium, you'll see the word soccer on and like, it. These are places where they didn't have public schools, so these kids hadn't been to school, but you do still learn um, from your peers and your family and your society around you a certain amount. Yeah, you're right. I'm picturing something that can't really happen. Like, where do, do kids completely... actually learn to read in school? Because I learned to read before I started school, and I basically taught myself to read. I mean, yeah. I, or my parents would read me bedtime stories, and then I would be able to link this is the page where this thing happens and i guess eventually like that's cool enough repetition of kind of getting to the point where i had memorized some children's books and i I don't remember though like my memory's not good enough to um remember what kind of mental notions i was making when i was learning to read but i know that like i just became such a voracious reader that i just taught myself to read from then on none of the instruction and reading or anything was 
very valuable to me in school. Yeah, I'm not saying that you need to go to a classroom and have someone do this. And I get, so I think I'm, I'm imagining a scenario that can't really happen where you can't lean on a peer, you know. So somebody in your group has, like you said, been to a soccer stadium, seen a soccer ball at a store, and it says soccer on the package, and you're looking at the ball, so you know that's what it says. Um, yeah, so, and you could find the keys that spell out the word soccer on the keyboard. <laughs> yeah, I'm basically <laughs> imagining have... where, you know, you grab a bunch of random people who don't speak you know, Arabic or something. I'm just picturing something, you know, non-NATO phonetic alphabet even. Yeah. And you put them all in a room with no outside resources. Of course, they won't be able to figure anything out. Um, I think but basically just the things that never happens in the real world. Yeah. Everyone has some society. I was, I was, stand, I was trying to stand up a straw man. Yeah. Um, so yeah, anyway. We've been here for a while. I have one last one that I, we can hit if that's okay. Totally. Yeah, let's wrap it up there and get on to the uh, sequences though. Okay. Within Reason, back on the Discord, says, and this is back on our episode on conflict theory versus mistake theory. Uh, Within Reason proposes an identity theory. Identity, the- identity theory says that people will only change their minds about things that do not imply anything strong about their identities. I think it tracks because it predicts how and why people have such trouble changing their minds in the face of evidence. Conflict and mistake don't address that. Conflict just says that it's all about power, but people should still change their minds if they're given evidence about who has the power and who the bad guys are, but they don't. Mistake says that everyone is trying to reach the right answer in good faith, so people should change their minds when confronted with evidence about any beliefs, but they don't. Identity theory says that they'll change things when it doesn't imply things about their identities. Caldini talks about this in Influence. Uh, he explicitly connects it to a person's self-conception and shows how one of the most effective ways to influence a person is to do something uh, to facilitate them fo- to facilitate them forming an identity where they are the kind of person who does that kind of thing. Commitment and consistency. Yeah, I thought that was that was an interesting thing to point out. I forget if uh, Scott says this openly, but. When he writes essays like Conflict versus Mistake, I, th- I think he is pretty open about saying that this is a fake model that I am kind of constructing in order to use it as an analysis tool. I'm not saying that literally there are only these two st- styles, but I do like the addition of identity theory. That tracks t- with um, some conversations I've had with Wes, who's uh, within reason. Mm-hmm. Um, I also want to link to Wes's blog. He has a good rationalist blog. Do you know Wes personally? Yeah, that's my partner from New Jersey. Oh, neat! <laughs> Oh, hot damn. I didn't know that. Cool. <laughs> yeah, um, hoping that if he visits Denver again, I can bring him to one of our less strong meetups. That would be awesome. He was here when we went to Valley View, but we were up in the mountains, so uh, <laughs> I didn't yeah, get to introduce yeah. anybody to him. Okay. Is Wes out as within reason on their internet yeah. handle? Or? Okay, cool. Um, All right. Yeah. Let's move on. I'll just say that I like that analysis, too. So It was cool. Yeah. Um. Before we get into the less wrong posts, uh, do we want to do a quick recommendation of things? Because I actually have things to recommend for the first time. Sure. Not the first time, but for... I don't very often... Yeah, please. No. But recommend I, stuff. I, yeah. So uh, the first thing I have to recommend is Raw by Sam Hughes, which I have to oh, thank... Oh, that's been on my reading list for a bit. Yeah, I have to thank Zeke um, for, for getting me to read it again. Way back in the day when it first came out, I started reading it. And at this time, I think I had just finished up uh, HPMOR. And I heard, oh, more rationalist fiction. I'll check it out. And it's so stylistically different from Methods of Rationality that like, I got two, three chapters in and I was like, hey, I'm not really interested in this. And I dropped it. And really, what mainly what I remembered was like, this was something I wasn't really interested in, right? But it's been like years since then. And Zeke was like, really, check it out. I think <laughs> you'd like it. It's pretty good. And I was like, okay, fine. 
So I went back and yeah, I think it was just because I was in a different mood for a different style at the time when I first picked it up. But now that I, I started again, I was like, oh, this is really interesting. And I read through the whole thing and I really liked it. Cool. And yeah. What's it about? Oh, uh, what's it? Okay, sorry. <laughs> um, it's basically a world where uh, magic exists and it was discovered in 1970. And now, uh, as in any world where real magic really exists, it is a branch of applied engineering. There's like <laughs> college courses on how to use magic and how to use it to get these industrial effects and stuff. And since it's only been about four decades, they're still learning new things about it. You know, it's like learning a whole new field of physics and like they're experimenting with it and seeing what it does. And I mean, that's 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 how it starts out. It's not all that it's about, but um, it's interesting where it ends up going. Okay. Yeah. So I, I would definitely recommend it. It has two endings also, notably. Uh, the new revised ending is, in my opinion, a much better one. Okay. To the point where definitely read the new one first. Uh, I would say you don't even need to bother with the old ending. If you want to, read it anyway. Just for comparison's sake, go for it. But you can tell that many years have gone by. And he he's not only did he get better at writing, but he managed to make it uh, a emotionally complete, fulfilling ending in a way that the original ending was not. So, yeah. Nice. Sounds, sounds awesome. And it sounds like a really fun premise, too. Yeah, and it's a great rationalist work. I mean, Sam Hughes has written a lot of things. I've read some of his short stories back on the H.P. Uh, Moore podcast when that was a thing. So, uh, Which one? Do you, or do you remember? Uh, yeah, the one that I really liked was Humans in Transit. The one about an AI who's basically staying on the down low uh, while human society is evolving when an asteroid smacks into Australia. And it has, like, what, eight, ten minutes to get uh, everyone on the planet oh, uploaded yeah. and then shoots them via yeah radio transmitter out to Alpha Centauri. And it ends with, okay, now that I've saved as many people as it is physically possible, I need to figure out a way to travel faster than light so I can get to Alpha Centauri and build a receiver. And, yeah, it was so good. It just fills you with this warm feeling when you read it. That's the kind of safety net that I like. That I think that must be what it's like being religious. Yeah, it's yeah. things if we got really bad, God would step in and save us. Exactly. Um, there was a a message like that in Cosmos, Carl Sagan's book. I don't think it was in the TV series. Probably not. Where he's like, <laughs> you know, there there is no one outside to come help. Yeah. This is on us. Yeah. Um, and that's empowering but also tenuous scary it would sure be super cool if we like in i guess the short story maybe didn't talk about the origins of this this dormant ai that was hanging out i don't think it said um, much about it no. so maybe they just built it and like all right that'll keep us safe if something happens and then something did and it kept them safe yeah. that's so cool yeah. yeah all right so and i actually have a second re second recommendation which is just shocking because i normally don't even <laughs> have one but uh this is a thing i saw yesterday so this is a fresh recommendation. I did not know I was going to be recommending this. Hot off the press. Uh, hot off the something. Yeah, this uh, is a hot take. I yeah. just crapped this out. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. <laughs> Paul Rudd, Ant-Man? Paul yes. Judd? Rudd. Paul Rudd. Paul Rudd is Ant-Man. I can uh, name the Avengers. Okay. Yeah, that's that's my list of But actors. he's not an Avenger, is he? Ant-Man's an Avenger. Okay. All right. I'll, I'll give him the title. Okay. Uh, the extended Avengers family. But he is right now in a Netflix show called Living With Yourself. It's good? Oh, my God. Oh, man. I, we were literally just a week ago, like, discussing one of the main topics of that show on uh, in our Discord. Like, a lot contentious. This is a thing that many transhumanists, even just many sci-fi nerds, talk a lot about. And they did a great job bringing it to life. And it's fucking 
it's it's smart and it's hilarious. I would say it's like The Good Place in the fact that it both tackles interesting cerebral subjects and it's really funny, except I think it's better than The Good Place. On the other hand, I've only seen two episodes so far, so I, I don't know if it like stays this good all the way through, but I like it more than The Good Place. I think it huh. addresses smarter issues and it's more funny when it's funny. And there it has like a few like dark things too, which is fun. I enjoy this. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Anyway, living with yourself. It's great. I'm stoked. I saw him pitch it. He was on Hot Ones a couple of weeks ago. Cool. <laughs> we talked about it briefly. Yeah. Um, Hot Ones is this YouTube channel where this guy will eat increasingly hot wings with a guest. Does he eat them too? Yeah. Oh, okay. I thought he just made them eat it. No, no. He eats them with them. Oh, wow. Okay. Which is insane because he's eating, you know, bowel destroying hot wings <laughs> a couple times a week yeah. you know, with, with famous people, which is the, the funny thing. Um. Yeah, anyway, Paul Rudd crushed it on that show. And he showed me a fun trick hmm. where he's he can you put your fingers in a certain way in front of the camera on your phone mm-hmm. and it looks like you're taking a picture from between somebody's legs and like you, your fingers are folded <laughs> just right so it looks like there's like a butt crack. Uh-huh. And so uh, my brother told me to watch that. He's like, hey, Paul Rudd's on Hot Ones. And so while I'm watching it and he shows this trick, I take a picture of the TV from between, <laughs> looks, like, looks like between somebody's legs and yeah. he, he got the joke. Oh, that's and awesome. Because I, I showed Rachel the I'll, I'll show you guys the picture. <laughs> you know, I'll post the picture on the, the, the for this because it was hilarious. Because I showed my wife and she was like, he knows what this is, right? Because it looks distinctly like a, like you're taking a picture from a human from behind. Cool. Um. Anyway, so Paul Rudd has a bunch of pictures of celebrities like that on his phone. And... <laughs> This isn't a perfect picture, but you can kind of see. Oh. <laughs> oh, so, oh my so Paul God, Rudd shows perfect. you how to do this. No, I can and see. <laughs> That's really funny. So, yes. In addition to him being an Avenger and able to crush the Hot Ones Challenge, I heard the show was good because yeah. uh, he pitched it and he's a great guy, it seems like. So I'm all, I'm all in. I'll check it out. Yeah, it's fun. It's awesome. also an amazing... They did an amazing job of having the same actor portray two different people and they look so different even though it's the same actor awesome yeah it's great oh i love when people are good at that so the good place was great through the first season Mm. i think and that's about it i Um, I think i'm i saw all of the second season which i thought was pretty good the the second season was pretty good but not i didn't like as much as the first okay yeah yeah. um and then the third season kind of is just like what are you guys even trying to do Mm. and the fourth season i think they're bringing it home in a way that will land well but it's week to week and it's not that much fun for me but i'm I'm still watching it i enjoy it it's just it seemed like they had their big idea in the first one yeah um but that said i think it's in the third season uh darcy fuck i figured her name the person who plays janet okay yeah um they she loved janet she she plays all of the characters only um and they're dressed like themselves but she's she's playing all of them Mm -hmm. and she's got their mannerisms down and their their reactions to everything perfect oh yeah it is one of just the best pieces of acting that i've ever seen awesome she's playing five characters in the room at the same time Mm -hmm. and she's nailing all of them sweet so it was it was really fun okay um i'm looking forward to that yeah, so that happens at some point. But as far as so, I'm I, I bet the yeah, this was just you saying one person looking different, and playing two different roles at the mm-hmm. same time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she managed to do five. Yeah, nice. But it was it was for basically one scene, not a whole series. Right. So, okay. Yeah. Anyway, cool. No hot takes from the Stevenator this week. So oh, well, I've got this episode. I've got a few. Oh man, um, I'm stoked. One is actually this cartoon that uh, Autumn, who hosts our. Lost Wrong Meetups, and Was McGonagall in the uh, Methods of Rationality podcast uh, showed me this cartoon called Infinity Train. <gasps> I okay. remember when the when the 
trailer for that came out like a year and a half ago. Yeah, they've got like 10 episodes. I think that they didn't end up picking it up. Um, oh. Although like people are trying to campaign to get it, to get more episodes made. How is it? Is it as good as the trailer looked? Yeah. Uh, if I hadn't heard of it until just yesterday, but if you like Adventure Time uh, and like Steven Universe and the kind of the cartoons that are coming out now that I think are pretty like suitable for adults to watch as well, well written, mm-hmm. well animated. The story is a girl from Wisconsin is trying to go to coding boot camp, but her divorced parents can't get their schedules together, so she's wandering around angry and uh, steps onto this train that magically appears, and then each car of the train is a different universe, and she's trying to figure out what the hell is going on, and she's got a number um, counting down on one of her hands. And keeps hearing different rumors from different, like, wacky characters on the train that, like, when it gets to zero, you die, or <laughs> various, uh, so it's basically, you're just in this universe, you have no idea what the fuck's going on, and, um, I really like this style of storytelling where a character has to persevere through wits and maybe just hard work. So, quick two questions. One, or one clarification. I think the first three seasons of The Good Place are on Netflix, and that's also where Paul Rudd's show, um, Living With Yourself, is. Where can I watch Infinity Train? Um, I think that was on Cartoon Network. Let me make sure. What if I don't have cable? I mean, CartoonNetwork.com. Like exists. their website. Ugh. I have to watch my computer then. <laughs> you or, can't or, have your computer or Google, up to your TV? Go- I can cast it to my TV, I oh, guess. Okay. Okay. Yeah, it's, it's on Cartoon Network. Okay. Uh, you can watch it for free on there. Or you can stream it for free from other places. I liked that show. I watched the first season, but not that closely. I think Disenchanted, was that the one by the oh, animators yeah. of Futurama? Uh-huh. It had a very similar vibe. Oh, excuse me, let me rephrase that. Completely different vibe. Different show entirely. Same animation style. Okay. But the same kind of like, there's lots of low-level background things. And like, you can you can it, rewatchability. I'm, I'm looking forward to rewatching the show because I only paid half attention the first time. I saw the first and episode and I just didn't get into it. I didn't like it either the first time. Maybe it took me episodes. a few episodes to get into it, actually. I had the same reaction where I was like, ah, it's like The Simpsons, but in like a fantasy RPG land. Like, okay. It, get, um, it gets a bit better. I'm not plugging it nearly as hard as you guys are. I was just thinking okay. of cartoons. Okay. So <laughs> that doesn't go on my official recommendation list. Yeah. <laughs> um, Man, it's, I been, it's well produced. Um, I haven't been up to shit the last few weeks. I don't know what else. I've watched Killing Eve. You don't have to watch a new thing every few weeks. <laughs> oh, I know. This is my but, first recommendation in like half a year. I know, but I'm going to take that super seriously. I'm going to go and watch an episode before this party tonight. So Cool. Um, um, so I forget if I have recommended this one already. If not, I'm going to plug it again. Uh, another rat fic that I've been enjoying, the Pokemon Origin of Species. Mm, you did mention that? I did mention that. Okay. Um, I'm just going to plug it again. And also, I'm thinking about reaching out to the author and seeing if I can podcast it. I think... I yeah, somebody know. on... Um, oh, so you somebody. may have just mentioned it personally to me rather than on the podcast. I don't recall. No, somebody wrote in on Discord. Yeah. I, on, I forget on, if it was actually Discord on an episode on or Patreon. if it was um, on one of our Patreon snippets. It okay. might have been like some pre-episode chat. But yeah, somebody replied and said somebody's recorded up to episode nine, but they haven't updated it in like nine months. So yes, probably I was gonna, now. Yeah. I was going to mention that, that uh, Patreon posts are public, right? So I can read their name. Um, first name only, just in case. Sure. Yeah. L- Luke wrote in and said, "You may already know, but Mars Oliva has done the first eight chapters of Pokemon on the Origin of Species, but they started two years ago, and they haven't released Chapter Nine for months. Yeah. So do with that info what you will. Yeah. yeah. I- I'm it. assuming that it's abandoned at this point, and I would be happy to pick it up. Do it. Um, I know Mr. Oliva, and can put you in contact with him. Well, don't know personally, but I have his email. Talked okay. to him once or twice. Nice. Huh. Um, I assumed Mars was a woman's name." Is that reverse sexism? That's 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 she default. 
I guess. What were we? What, what did you call it before? You said he was the default something. There was a word for that. Oh, I mean, um, Mars is, is also the name of the Roman god of war. So I don't know why there would be a female name necessarily. I guess I, I've got a coworker and um, what Mara? Yeah, and I call her Mars. Okay, Mars okay. bars. Which I'm amazed that she made it into her thirties <laughs> without anyone calling her that. So okay. um, I've never even seen a Mars bar. Do they me, still make those? Do they? I don't know I if don't they know. do. I don't know if they do either. Were those actually a thing or were they they were those a in a cartoon or something? I remember my dad talking about them being a favorite candy of his. I know I ate hmm. one when I was a kid. Hmm. Well. All right. Well, before we forget, we've got two less wrong posts to go okay. back on. Okay. Wait, could I do my other recommendations? Oh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, one is a book. I've been trying to learn more about cancer. Um, the book Emperor of All Maladies by Siddhartha Mukherjee um, is a very well researched and put together um his, it, it, he calls it a biography of cancer, writing it as though cancer were, like, a, a person. <laughs> and, uh, I don't know, it's just, it's got, um, it jumps back and forth a bit, but, like, it ties everything together in regard to what we know about the history of cancer, how long people have had it, ways people have tried to treat it, what they thought caused it, and then the evolution of modern cancer remedies. And, uh, it's been really fun and horrifying to read about, like early discoveries in cancer therapy where it was just very experimental uh before especially the uh where like they required um like the belmont report and uh the helsinki declaration they're basically like requiring that you need to give informed consent before you (laughs) are allowed to enroll somebody in like medical uh experiments but Apparently, back in the day, it was just like, oh, your kid has leukemia, I'm a doctor, I'll take it from here. And then you could just do whatever the hell you wanted, because you're the doctor, and nobody, the kid, the parent, had to, like, sign off on any of it. Oh, wow. (laughs) So, like, yeah, they were doing some pretty horrifying things to try to treat cancer. On the other hand, your kid was probably going to die if had leukemia anyway. Like, before the 60s, if your kid got leukemia, it was a death sentence. Yeah. Yeah. So. But, yeah, you're, you're right. The informed consent thing is really important. It certainly is what what did they was there anything particularly horrifying you remember that they did well i mean um a lot of it was just experimenting with early chemotherapies okay um and it took them a while to find the ones that were because like cancer is not like a virus where it's something uh we can identify this as being not the host and create drugs that are targeted to destroy it It, cancer is the host it's still your own cells they're just mutated so you have to find um Something that will selectively kill cancer cells. We're just getting to that point. That's actually what, like, one of the things I'm working on is CAR T. But chemotherapy is indiscriminate. It just wreaks havoc. And so, like, you'll you'll get like these five uh, chemotherapy drug regimens that you'll try. So, like, we've still got this. We got like RCHOP, which is like rituximab, and a bunch of other drugs with long names that are really, really poisonous. And like. Back in the day, they were just kind of like, hey, let's throw these six drugs together and put them in this kid <laughs> and see if they survive. I knew I recognized Siddhartha Mukherjee's name. Um, they were on episode 98 of Sam Harris's podcast, oh. uh, Into the Darkland was the name of the episode. Huh. And what I were they a, talking about? Uh, oh, was this the one where antibiotics might fail? No, that was no. A, that was another one. That was okay. that was more recent. Okay. I just knew I'd heard this name before, uh, and it was driving me crazy. That's why I did my victory thing because I couldn't get the search <laughs> thing on my podcast app to work, so I had to Google it twice. Cool. Um, yeah, I want to check out more of their books because this one's I'm enjoying it a lot. Cool. Uh, and then, like the last recommendation, I forget if I've brought this up before either, but I know other people in the rationalist community have been doing this. 
um i got a playstation vr and i've been using beat saber as my mm. like solo exercise routine and it's very good for people who like video games or have a competitive streak um I was having the hardest time to like trying to establish any kind of regular exercise routine after I moved and all kinds of things shifted around. So um, I think that there's other benefits to playing Beat Saber too, aside from it being good exercise in that you can watch yourself get better at something really quickly. I think it's structured in such a way that uh, if, especially if you play through the campaigns and they like go through the various difficulty levels that you can actually like see yourself in real time learning and getting better at something. And it's really good, like, motivational uh, boost if you're struggling with other things in your life. Fine, I'll come play this. This sounds awesome. <laughs> Please come play it. It's fun. I'd like prepared, really happy about introducing people to it. You're watch me sitting there with a headset on and ignoring you playing, <laughs> playing a game. But It's actually pretty fun to watch, too. Cool. Um, yeah, that's all I got. We should probably move on to sequences. Alrighty. Unless anybody else had anything to... If anyone else has anything, I'll strangle them. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, focus your uncertainty is our first one. I was you already beat me to my joke. I was like, oh, I've got something to recommend. Focus your uncertainty from less wrong. <laughs> okay. uh, right. So how, yeah, how do we want to do this? Should I, I jump in or what? Yeah, you're already there. Okay. Focus your uncertainty is the first uh, less wrong post we're reading this time. It starts out with Eliezer uh, proposing a hypothetical scenario where uh, someone is asking you, will bond yields go up or down or remain the same? If you're a TV pundit and your job is to explain the outcome after the fact, then there's no reason to worry, which is, first of all, great dig on TV pundits. Like, they just make up whatever after the fact, right? <laughs> but he goes on to say, suppose you're a novice TV pundit and you aren't experienced enough to just make up explanations on the spot. You need to pre prepare remarks in advance for tomorrow's broadcast and you have limited time to prepare. You only got 100 minutes to come up with excuses. You can't spend the entire 100 minutes on up and also spend the entire 100 minutes on down and also spend the 100 minutes on stay the same. you got to prioritize somehow. You don't want to spend 33 precious minutes on excuse you don't anticipate needing. In your uncertain state of mind, it seems that you anticipate the three events differently, that you expect to need some excuses more than others. And, this is the fascinating part, when you think of something that makes it seem more likely that bond prices will go up, you feel less likely to need an excuse for bond prices going down or remaining the same. It even seems like there's a relation between how much you anticipate each of the three outcomes and how much time you want to spend preparing each excuse. Of course, the relation can't actually be quantified. You have 100 minutes to prepare your speech, but there isn't 100 of anything to divide up in this anticipation business. And so I... I just thought that was a absolutely wonderful way of um, illustrating the idea of of what a probability distribution feels like inside of your brain. Yeah. Um, basically, this post is Elias. You're making the case for why you should apply math and other thinking skills that you should have learned in school or real life. And uh, I like how it's for some reason making me think of I've been like digging back into the getting things done GTD method again. And uh, David Allen proposes natural planning. And it really like, it's a, a systematized like way that you can create steps for a project that is based on the way your brain naturally thinks about stuff. And I like how this is kind of the natural planning version of how you come to have 
probability distributions in your head. Because, like, this is the, like, I, I guess maybe the the thing that's the similarity between the two of them is maybe people might come at planning a project or trying to develop a probability distribution with, like, some trepidation. Like, oh, that sounds hard. That sounds like that's something that requires, like, a lot of study or, like, knowing higher-level math. But actually, it's just like, no, this is the thing you're doing all the time. Mm-hmm. You're doing this naturally, like, behind the scenes, and you just don't realize it. Yeah. And I, I, I like that framing of the minutes that you have to spend, because a lot of times people are like, well, I don't know how the hell to put like a 10% probability on something versus 90% of something else. I just think like, <laughs> this is really unlikely and this is very likely. But once you put it in terms like, okay, you have 100 minutes to to prepare for these scenarios. How much time are you going to spend on each one? Mm. That really helps someone get the feeling for what their probability feels like. Yeah. And the novice pundit, like having to justify the expenditure of their time and resources, uh, and deciding to go with the one that's more likely. It's explaining how you can think of intuition as this conserved resource like money. There's yeah. a limited supply and you have to decide where to allocate it. And that makes total sense if you think about it in the metaphor. Totally. And I like the, the ending remark as well, which was, if only there was an art of focusing your uncertainty or squeezing <laughs> as much anticipation as possible into whichever outcome will actually happen. But what would you call an art like that? And what would the rules be? Yeah, that's yeah. perfect. Yeah. That would have been, I get why that wasn't the first post on the blog, but it's, it, it almost feels like it should be. <laughs> it could be. Yeah. yeah. I wonder, I haven't read AI to zombies. I wonder if it's one of the earliest ones in that. I don't think, I don't it, think is. it is. No. Um, I have no idea. This I... might be a good introductory post for someone that wants to get into, well, at least learning about like Bayesian rationality, but if they want to, you know, learn about the sequences and read kind of all that I have to say about that one. Though. <laughs> yeah, me too. Good, good way of, of visualizing what uncertainty feels like. Mm-hmm. The next one is the proper use of doubt. Yeah, I can take this one if you want. Excellent. Um, Eliezer says that organized belief systems seem like they flee from doubt. So doubting or skepticism seems like it's scary or not allowed or unvirtuous to people. A friend replied, after he says this, that Jesuits are supposed to doubt. And at the time, Eliezer wasn't able to confirm or deny whether this was true. And I'm actually not sure if that's true either. I intended to look it up and forgot. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but uh, yeah, this friend was basically like, oh no, like, organized belief systems love doubt. We're encouraged to doubt ourselves all the time. And so Eliezer thought Jesuits wouldn't be properly described as fleeing from doubt, or they'd be rationalists. Uh, they claim that they're, or the claim that they're really doubting it all seems suspicious to him. What his friend described sounded more like a desensitization program for a phobia, like uh, exposure therapy. If you're afraid of spiders, like slowly introducing you to a photo of a spider or like here's a tarantula in a box and you can just like gently touch it and it's tame. And <laughs> mm-hmm. Like first doubt for a little while that God exists. And then at the end of the class, it's okay, kids, God does exist. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So uh, well, he was thinking rationalists should be comfortable with doubt. Uh, whereas this, like they're making doubt sound like a phobia here so he likens doubt to the idea that by unweaving the rainbow you ruin a grand mystery like the the um keats poem yeah but like that unweaving the rainbow was also one of richard dawkins books about uh atheism or uh, generally like not even about atheism about this whole idea beautiful 
worldview of science. The whole the, the the thesis of that book in my one sentence summary would be Keat, that Newton didn't destroy the rainbow by explaining how it worked. He made the universe that much cooler and that much more beautiful and that all of science does that. Mm-hmm. It doesn't take anything away other than your your fantasy of how things you thought they were. Yeah, or the, you're underlying... like, ooh, what a cool mystery, Tingles. Yeah, <laughs> but then you get the, oh my god, what a cool phenomena, Tingles, yeah. <laughs> which get you off way more. Yeah, yeah and I, like, and I don't the, know, I always thought that. The phenomena tends to be even more uh, cool than, like, the whole mystery vibe that you had before. Yeah, how everything's so much more complicated. Is, is in in the right framing, way more fun than just imagining Thor up there throwing a temperature <laughs> in, right? Yeah. Now, that would be cool, but <laughs> um, it's earthquakes how that actually happens on something the size of the of, of a planet yeah are, is really interesting if you just thought oh it's because gay people are having sex it's like okay <laughs> like i i don't see how that's nearly as satisfying as an explanation or even if you just don't know the, that feeling of mystery is still like it's not as good as like actually learning it and seeing how complicated it is and how all these different forces go into what you end up seeing in the world yeah, yeah. I feel like learning something just gives you more questions. Like, mm-hmm. well, how does how does the rainbow work? Light is a spectrum of these seven colors. Well, how does that work? And yeah. like, well, you and start talking about wavelengths, and then what is light? And it's mm-hmm. a wave and a particle, and you're just like the mysteries just keep going all the way down. Yeah. And so, like, you're actually just stopping yourselves from having more cool mystery tingles. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> anyway, yeah. If you want understanding tingles and mystery tingles, science is the way to go. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Meanwhile, uh, the act of solving that mystery, Eliezer thinks, that's the virtue of rationality. And uh, I pulled a quote out. A doubt that neither destroys itself nor destroys its target might as well have never existed at all. Yeah. Oh, can I read the few sentences just before that? Oh, sure. Uh, so I pulled that little longer quote. All curiosity seeks to annihilate itself. There is no <laughs> curiosity that does not want an answer. But if you obtain an answer, if you satisfy your curiosity, then the glorious mystery will no longer be mysterious. In the same way, every doubt exists in order to annihilate some particular belief. If a doubt fails to destroy its target, the doubt has died unfulfilled. But that is still a resolution, an ending, albeit a sadder one. Which I think is also an interesting commentary on his uh, personality, that he thinks it's sadder for a doubt to um, annihilate itself rather than the belief. Like, either one is interesting information, and some people would be, like, more relieved that the doubt was, you know, false. Yeah, I mean, um, if you think about the book methods of rationality, like, it's kind of like the character gets really excited when they find a new mystery, something they don't know, or something that challenges them. So I I do kind of see that as a virtue. Yeah. But yeah, then he says, a doubt that neither destroys itself or destroys its target might as well never existed. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. The... I think it's maybe he says it's sadder because uh, you didn't learn anything new if the mm. doubt destroys itself. But yeah, you're just you're confirming making, things you yeah. already knew. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, he says it's the resolution of doubts, not the mere act of doubting, that drives the ratchet of rationality forward. Yeah, and then um, he goes on to say that not all doubts are rational. Wearing it, uh, this is another quote: "Wearing doubts doesn't make you a rationalist any more than wearing a white medical lab coat makes you a doctor." And uh, I agree with that. It reminds me of people who doubt stuff with scientific evidence, like anti-vaxxers, right. trying to argue that their opponents aren't open-minded, <laughs> or science is a dogma, where, yeah. 
And that's that sounds like anticipating that sort of weaponized doubt where it's like, oh, I'm just being a good virtuous doubter yeah. and skeptic by not by not buying into all this vaccine business. Yeah. Um, the doubt should either annihilate itself or annihilate the the belief right. that it was aimed at. And and it, it could be applied both ways. Like, all right, so let's look at let's doubt the the anti-vax position and see what you get there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and if you're Oh, I don't want to look into that. Or you know, if you're if you have a knee jerk, if you have a reflex to to shy away from that, then that's not the proper use of that. That is the exact opposite of what you should be doing. Um, He says a doubt should point to the way to destroy the doubt. So, pointing out kind of the idea that untestable hypotheses are pretty worthless. That's why I like bust on string theory. But um, if you are going to put forth a hypothesis, it should be something that's testable. There's not really much point to sitting there and being like, well, what if there's an invisible fairy that causes milk to turn into cheese? And I don't know, like, just start coming up with this whole history behind, like, other than, like, maybe making some entertaining fiction, this isn't really a useful, productive use of your time or brain power. Yeah. <laughs> he, he says, and here's a quote, that you need a particular reason to doubt. An unresolved doubt is a null op. Mm. Yeah, and then... This ends with, uh, if you don't really doubt something, why would you pretend that you do? Because Jesuits want to pretend they're as virtuous as scientists, or they're doing this modesty signaling thing by going, but I doubt my religion, so I'm as good as you, but this is not real doubting. It's, uh, I think he said, um, maintaining the tribal status hierarchy instead of actually having a real doubt, seeking to annihilate a belief. Hmm. Um, I did have an interesting conflict while reading this do you guys think that this this um all doubts seek to annihilate themselves conflicts with the previous post at all because like isn't isn't holding a probability probability distribution in your head kind of the same thing as as being kind of doubtful um i think that it's kind of using probabilities um because like you can't always test every hypothesis um or you can gather more evidence in support of it, but most things don't come in a black and white. Like, okay, we're going to do this experiment, and then, like, this is definitely going to prove it. Um, so that's just, like, a tool that you can use to kind of bring your doubt into higher resolution. I don't think that this is... I think I get what you're saying, that okay. <laughs> you, can, you can use doubts to alter what your probabilities of things are. Yeah, or, like, I think it's a more sophisticated, um, like, first you have to be able to know what is uh, worthwhile of doubting, and why, and then, like, what the purpose of a doubt is, and then once you start developing the skills to think about these things in terms that are, (laughs) this is really hard to explain. Uh, If I I might just jumpstart my thought on it unless yeah, go right. ahead no uh, i was just like struggling i think i think the the key stepping stone is to think of things in probability distributions rather than in i believe this is true or false mm-hmm. um so if you like if you're 80 percent confident that bond yields would go up you'd spend 80 percent of your minutes uh you know present or writing that uh analysis for it to present the next day or something right yeah um and then if you have a doubt of some kind that it's that strong Maybe the doubt will motivate you to find out whether you should revise it down to 60%. Or... And it lets you be capable of doing that. Yeah. Whereas if you 
the, the, maybe the, this anchor, this hypothetical TV pundit doesn't have any real vested interest other than not getting fired. But like, if you really cared about um, the outcome of something, you're 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 ready to accept that. All right, here's my my assumption that this will work, and here's my my confidence um, when you're thinking about it in those terms, rather than I believe this in the colloquial sense of I believe this. Mm-hmm. Then you're you're open to chasing that doubt and uh changing your mind right yeah yeah Uh, updating more uh up or down i guess i guess i dislike how how dissonant these two posts are in tone like the first one is very much about holding probabilities and not not you know you aren't 100 sure of things but here's how you can uh think about your uncertainty and then in this one it's very much like doubts exist to annihilate a belief or to annihilate themselves and a a dull doubt that does nothing is worthless and that's very much a black or white thing it either annihilates itself or or the belief and that just feels like so that black and white is so in contrast with the the spectrum thinking of before i think i had a similar reaction to it i actually wrote after the quote uh oh i scrolled up hang on Yeah, a doubt that neither destroys itself nor destroys its target might as well have never existed. Mm-hmm. And I wrote, is this a good way to think about doubt? It seems kind of extreme. And then I wrote under that, well, actually, like, if I try to liken this to the scientific method, it actually makes a lot more sense. Right. That the um, doubt should motivate you. Yeah. Or, like, there's no point in doubting something that, like, if you <laughs> discovered that the... the that it was true or false like it wouldn't mean anything i guess there's no point in doubting something if you're just going to hold on to the doubt and like reify the doubt as something right. valuable as opposed to as a motivator right or if you're not actually open to the possibility of changing your mind yeah. which is what he accused the quote doubting unquote jesuits of doing yeah pretending to doubt <laughs> well the jesuits you know they can they have no intention of pursuing the doubts the doubts are just there in their minds and that's what's bad about them that they're going to hold on to their beliefs without following the doubts because I don't know, maybe they're scared of what the doubts will find. Yeah. Which is, yeah, which I might be curious <laughs> to uh, look up. I don't know very much about Jesuits, but like how that's actually structured. Like I, I just actually like psychologically find this fascinating. Somebody who, okay, I'm required to sit here for 10 minutes and do a meditation on how much I doubt this religion, but then at the end of it, I'm supposed to actually not doubt it. (laughs) What does that look like on the inside? If anyone was raised Jesuit and actually has firsthand experience, I'd be interested in reading about it, or rather hearing about it, if you want to write in. I dislike how much work we have to do to make these two things feel like they cohere, even though I think I know what he's trying Mm. to get at. I think it could and should have been written clearer. I can dig it. Yeah. Although in this vast of a body of writing it's not surprising that not everything's perfect yeah and i think that these weren't originally written to flow together so probably the way that they rearranged them for um we're reading them in the order that they yeah. were put online but i mean like i don't think that eliezer was actually like writing one after the other kind oh, of sequentially well, right right like it was more like okay today i'm gonna write a post about this thing and it, it wasn't really meant to be read as they do book. often jump around yeah. yeah in topic and sometimes in tone too like mm-hmm. uh I like that he was kind of experimenting with the way that he, the kind of tone, the kind of structure that he used for some of these. And then also it makes it a little hard to read sometimes too. I like that. I think Methods of Rationality pulled it all into one tone. Mm, yeah. So that stops kind of being distracting when you're trying to figure out what kind of like literary narrative trick things going on in this one. <laughs> um, 
It, yeah, I don't know. I don't think it's necessarily a flaw of the writing either, though. Just that sometimes it, maybe it can be a bit distracting when you come across something like this. Where, <laughs> But then again, we've also thought about it more than some of the others because of that. So, yeah, shrug. Okay, for next time we have The Virtue of Narrowness, You Can Face Reality, and The Apocalypse Bet. So three for next time because one of them I remember was really short. Okay. Uh, also, really quick again, just plugging Stephen's uh, We Want More podcast coming out very soon. And um, I wanted to ask, I found when I was uh, making the podcast, uh, after after I was done with it, you know, I went and uploaded it and typed out the title again. Like, looking at the title of a chapter again when I got to the end of the chapter often, like, reinforced what that chapter was about. Yeah. I was like, oh, man, I now see, now that I'm done with the chapter, how this title showed up a number of times throughout that chapter as themes. Do you, do you guys do that at all? Uh, we've only done the one episode so far, mm-hmm. and we sort of, we didn't put together enough notes for the first episode to really... Um, like I did because I have a stupidly encyclopedic memory of what happened when. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I will make a point to do that for okay. every ongoing chapter because you're you're right. The chapter names aren't arbitrary. Yeah. They're I not think, chapter one. Yeah. Right? I'd um, be curious to also hear um, from who's your uh, reading partner? Brian. Brian. I I'd be curious if you asked Brian like, could you after having read this chapter tell me your in your own words what uh the fundamental attribution errors or whatever the subject of, because, um, I mean, I remember when I was originally reading methods of rationality, it was before I had had any exposure to any of these ideas. And I think I, I went and tried to read the sequences a couple of times and I found them to be too confusing or the wording to be uh, like, if you aren't familiar with any of the rationalist jargon, it can be really hard if you're just yeah. jumping around, it can seem like, you know, some of these are building off of other things that came earlier, but I don't know where to go. I just, I don't know. I found it to be too intimidating at the time. So I never really got into reading the sequences until um, I was like more comfortable with a bunch of the other rationalist writing out there. But I do also think that it's pretty clear in some chapters what like the moral of the story or the lesson was. And some of the others, I don't know if they're as well explained. <laughs> so... Cool. Yeah, no, I think that'd be a really good exercise. Yeah, and it's hard to go back and think, like, put myself in the place before I knew what these things meant. Yeah. So to ask, basically, do you understand what science is presented in this chapter? Yeah. Um, Or what kind of technique it's trying to teach you? Or do you understand why this chapter was named what it was named, even? Yeah. Okay, yeah. I wanted to do the the first, yeah, the first chapter was, or the first episode was sort of a rough draft, but one that's going to be published. We're not going to redo it. Um, but yeah, there, there are sections of things I want to, as we go through it, especially cover the rationalist techniques that Harry uses in each chapter. You know, some of them are, couldn't be more in your face. Like there's the whole, um, basically explaining of Bayesian probabilities when they're doing the hypothesis testing. Um, I remember there were a few chapters that when I read the title, I was like, oh, not only are there multiple examples of multiple characters doing exactly what the chapter title was. There was even in one case like sort of a meta narrative of this whole thing happening, and I wish I could remember which <laughs> chapter it was, but it was it was like wow that was fantastic. <laughs> All right, anyways, sorry we got off topic again. Uh, we have to thank a patron. This is an interesting one. Uh, our patron this week is Progress.fm, <laughs> which is that like a that's the name that showed up on Patreon. <laughs> huh, interesting. <laughs> now I kind of want to go to Progress.fm and see if it's a thing. 
Um, but progress.fm, whether you are a person or an organization or an <laughs> FM station, uh, we thank you for your, uh, for your patronage. It helps us bring us, bring you all this stuff. And, um, hold on a second. I'm going to Google this right now. I'm already there. Oh, it's what is a it? lot. It's a, uh, assuming this is the same person. Progress.fm takes you to a page that just says launching January 1st, 2020. Huh. Interesting. Well, now my interest has peaked. Yeah. Yeah. If you are, <laughs> what was it, practice? Or progress. 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 If you are progress.fm uh, and you're listening to this, maybe tell us if you're working on something cool. Yeah. Because I would like logo to Logo looks it cool. Ooh, that's a good logo. <laughs> and yeah. if you are not affiliated with progress.fm <laughs> that we just Googled, uh, thank you very much, sir. We, or ma'am, or whatever. We let, Thanks, fucker. <laughs> <laughs> thanks, comrade. Yeah. We, we appreciate it and it help, It really does help us it does thank you very much cool. alright see y'all in a couple weeks perfect All right. good night everybody keeping this a little bit shorter than average.